Hi, uh, I'm uh, trying to fix my hair. Yeah, <laughs> not that the uh, audience can see it. Yeah, not yeah. not that anybody cares. Um, it's 2023. We're still a mess. Happy New Year, everybody! <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody! <laughs> my name is Amelia Ampuero. Uh, I'm uh, Scotty Milder. This is the Weirdest Thing Podcast, and yes, yeah, coming at you hot and hard in uh, 2023. <laughs> I don't know. That was like both real porny and like real morning show, like douchebag. <laughs> Coming to you hot and hard this morning. The start yeah. of a new year. Let's get ready. We've got Let's Jake on the side with traffic on the 505. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so the hope is that this episode is coming out on mm-hmm. Friday the 13th. Yeah, that's the plan as of now. As of now. Well, we'll see what happens over the next few days. Um, yes. But yeah, to uh, I think to be suitably uh, grim and spooky for the new year and for Friday the 13th. We're, we ha- uh, yeah, we had to do we it. Ha- we have to do it. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, how's that? But before we before we do it, like, how's how's your new year going so far? I mean, we got a, ourselves a new speaker of the house. That's very exciting. <laughs> Finally, after like 87 <laughs> votes. I know. I, I will. I'm not going to go into it, but I, I will say like there was a point because I watched a lot of it where I really was like, are we like is lauren bobert gonna end up being speaker of the house oh my god like it really felt like that could happen but no it didn't some other douchebag got it so i i saw i don't know if it was a tweet or a meme or what but it was like you know mccarthy Mm -hmm. um right now and it was one of those old school like middle school notes that was like do you like me yes no (laughs) um and I felt like that's that's what that I mean, was like. That guy just I feel like like if you look up try hard in the dictionary, you get a picture of Kevin McCarthy. Dude just he wants it so bad. He want he, he wanted had, it. He's he's got real pick me energy. He's got real pick me energy. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so uh that's happening. But how's how's your New Year's going so far? Um, it's going fine. <laughs> We're just going to try to slide into 2023, but, um, how's, how's yours going? Uh, okay. Like it's been a little weirdly intense at the beginning, but not, you know, everything's, I think, I think going to work out. We spent like a bunch of time in Arizona right uh-huh. before New Year's. Uh, yep. so that I, was... s- mm-hmm. I spent a bunch of time in California. That's right. Yeah. You're in Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. How, mm-hmm. How'd that go? What was that? It was cool. I ate a lot of really good food. Because Palm Springs is a cool, is a, is a cool little yeah. town. It has a, I don't know. I like the vibe. It feels very California. It's a palm mm. oasis in the middle of the desert. Yeah. No, I, I like Palm Springs. The only thing I don't like that makes me uncomfortable about Palm Springs is it is like you are in the middle of the Mojave and they are You're technically just not. Like, the Mojave is north. Okay, but you're in the desert. I mean you you're are like, in right, the desert. Because you're right by the Mojave, but you're uh they're just like spraying water constantly there. Mm. Like, yeah, I'm like, I really liked it because we were there in December. Mm-hmm. And the temperatures were like 80 degrees. That's true. We went to go, uh, and I sent Scotty a picture of this. We went and we did a tour of the San Andreas Fault. Mm -hmm. And we were like, 
you know, as I sent you in that text, we were like in the smush mush of mm-hmm. the San Andreas. Right. Fault. And I was like, can you guys do these tours in the summer? And they were like, well, we had, and I think they said they had like a ridiculously long stretch of triple digit days over the summer. Mm-hmm. And then they had a stretch of days where it was, I think, 120 or above. Mm-hmm. That's too hot. It's too that's, much. Yeah. That's too much. I mean, I went camping in joshua tree in the middle of july which is like right by there yeah that was i mean we had a good time but there was a moment like where i was like we we could die like we could die out here we were hiking around and like i feel like people die in joshua tree all the time yeah it was kind of like oh like idiots like us are the ones who die in joshua tree all the time (laughs) like yeah (laughs) you had like a can of yoohoo and you were like i'm good (laughs) i mean the big excitement was getting chased by bees in the middle of the that was fun times but yeah no i do like that part of the state and i I do like palm springs i find that whole area like both like it's like kind of cool and kind of funky and also kind of spooky it i mean and it's 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 definitely like it's got an interesting vibe because there's i mean there is there's chunks of like all of the the nine desert cities right that are Mm -hmm. very modern that's like new developments and stuff but the majority of what you see of palm springs feels very much like sort of trapped in amber Mm. You know, mid-century modern design is super big there. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it There's, does feel very out of the 1950s. Yeah, it does. Um, it does. Which I, I like about it. But me, it is. It's a, me too. It, it's a little Twilight zone And then, like, you get down by, like, Indio and Salt and Sea and stuff. It gets real weird. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I do yeah. like that area. Um, One thing, one amendment, which I texted you about literally after we got done recording the last podcast episode, which was about an American tale and knives out is that Mm. if I can bring this up um, that we didn't get the chance to talk about how Harlan creates an incredible uh, he, he, he crafts like the perfect murder. Like he crafts Mm -hmm. Marta getting away with the perfect murder in like three minutes. I know. Yeah. Um, Which I think is just really fantastic. (laughs) You know, like clearly he's at the top of his game and uh, the little joke that's in there of when Martha is like trying to follow his instructions and it's the, you know, turn off before the elephant. And she's like, is it before or after? And he's like, before, after be after four, <laughs> like <laughs> just to like a great little joke in yeah. there. Lots of fun. Well, since you're bringing uh, it up, I guess I'm, I've asked you this several times. So I'm going to ask you again. Have you seen glass Onion yet? No, no. <laughs> um, We're yeah, going to talk about it. that. We're going to talk about that offline. Okay. (laughs) I will Mm -hmm. just say I saw it. Um, I'm not obviously not going to spoil anything. Um, I think a lot of people have seen it, but if you haven't seen it, I just, my, my like little 30 second review is uh, probably not as good as knives out. I don't think, uh, but still real, like a lot of fun. And I did like getting more of the Benoit Blanc character, a little more focus on him. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just, I know the guy's like famously an asshole, but I'm just happy to see Edward Norton. And stuff so when he why is it that he is famously an asshole? Because he's I've just, also I, I've also difficult. heard other things that he got that he was a he was a Weinstein collateral damage. Well, there may be some truth to that in terms of like just his career because I think he was somewhat uh, like part of their stable. But like I don't know any like Me Too stuff about him, although but. Uh, I you know who knows. I can give but. you the cliff's notes when you're done. Okay, <laughs> I do know that he's just famously like 
hard to work with apparently and like wants everything his way he'll take over a movie he's had directors pushed off of i mean famously american history x was this like really controversial production Mm. where he kind of like took over and and that's happened a few times with him so my guess is he's just like not super pleasant to deal with a lot but Mm -hmm. i do i you know i don't know anything about him beyond just like i enjoy watching the guy so yeah so well, it sounds I, like you might know something that I missed. <laughs> so I had heard that he was dating Salma Hayek when they were making Frida. Okay. I do. I think I do know some of this. Right, and ahead. he came in to do, uh, you know, because Harvey Weinstein was like, eh, you gotta do, you have to do a naked scene because I want to see you naked and blah, 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 blah. And you have to do a love scene and all this stuff. And that I think if I'm remembering correctly, Ed Norton did the rewrites for the mm-hmm. script to like write in the scene and, and was like, I think sort of famous like you're not gonna like do this to her mm-hmm. like cut the shit you're not gonna so, do this to her and then harvey had him black essentially blacklisted yeah okay so that that's a, like a positive ed norton story and yes and that in a way goes along with like the him being difficult <laughs> is i think when i say he's famously an asshole he's an asshole the way like david fincher i think is an asshole and david yeah. fincher is probably my favorite living film director well and, and I that think he's that's just a- like he he knows what he wants Right. And he's not afraid to like tell you what he wants. And right. He's and I think that's going to be like super grateful to you, Mr. Big Producer. Whatever, I think that's the know? that's and I'm not saying that it is. It's completely possible that both of these things are true at the same time. Mm-hmm. We contain multitudes. Right. Um, but, you know, it's like there is a certain group of people, I think, in Hollywood who are allowed to be very, very difficult. And it's brushed off as like, well, they're geniuses. And so, like, we've all got to put up with mm-hmm. it and blah, blah, blah. And then, like, everybody else is deemed well, difficult and like your proximity to like straight het white maleness like the further you get from that the i think the more the easier it is for you to be labeled difficult right well because i think like a lot of the things you hear about edward norton are like things you could also apply to like Catherine heigl and like see like the difference in like the trajectory of their careers you know right right you know he's i mean edward is a better actor he is a better actor but still (laughs) Like, but the but that is not like not a factor, <laughs> right? That he is a dude. I will say though, I mean, I think, and this is what I I always hear about like um about David Fincher too, is it's like he's a quote asshole in mm. that he's like they can be temperamental, they can be tempestuous, but everything I've ever heard about Edward Norton is it's always about the work. He's not mm. like throwing his weight around because of ego. I don't think mm-hmm. he's difficult. But he also delivers the goods, which is what I would say about David Fincher, too. So it's like, and, you know, I think he expects a lot of, I don't know that he's, like, known to be an asshole to other actors. I think it's more to, like, directors, producers. Like, he's, Mm. you know, he expects Mm -hmm. a lot from a production, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, And, like, you have to kind of be on your, like, on your toes, with him and that's why i think like you know he and he and david fincher probably work really well together yeah things like fight club because it's just like i think they're kind of coming at it from the same same perspective you know yeah so anyway long story short i enjoyed watching him in glass onion okay um he's a lot of fun i enjoyed watching uh janelle monet she she was really actually pretty great Mm -hmm. and like it's a it's you know it's a fun story i i think it like I said, it didn't quite uh, land with me quite like Knives Out, but I definitely think it was it was a lot of fun. So okay, well there we go. There you there got it. Go. 
Yeah. Okay. So we said that we were going to start doing, we started kind of talking about what we were doing and then we got derailed like usual. Yeah. <laughs> so hoping fingers crossed that this episode comes out on Friday, the 13th. Mm-hmm. Um, if it does, don't worry about it. And if it doesn't, you'll know that more would, then. Yeah. Well, and also don't worry about it. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. <laughs> it just feels like we're being super cagey and we're not trying to be super cagey. No, it's just, there's I mean, just I'll, there's stuff. There's I'll just, just like, I mean, I'll stuff. just say like there's been a death in my family and I'm and there's trying to work out plans to go out for the funeral and, right. and whether I can get the, the podcast edited before that is is the question is the question that's that's the goal that's the goal yeah okay well should we should we do this thing let's do it all right well i think uh i think we decided even though like technically you're supposed to go first Mm -hmm. that i'm going first this week just because of like the chronology of our story so yes okay so i'm uh i've got actually three stories this week i don't have a i got two kind of short ones and one longer one Okay. Um, but we're we're kind of we were wanting to do stuff about curses this week. Yes. So I'm I'm uh doing cursed tombs. Fantastic. I uh, don't really have a cold open, and I'm gonna save my uh, sources for the end. So let's just like dive right on in. Okay. Um, I'm just 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 because it kind of the sources kind of spoil what the stories are. So. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so the first is the tomb. And by the way, uh, I got just, as always, um, there's going to be some real shitty pronunciation of names in these stories. So, you know, I apologize. Um, (laughs) Okay, so the tomb of Casimir for Jagiellon. Jagiellon. Uh, So Casimir for Jagiellon was the Grand Duke of Lithuania who later became the King of Poland in 1447. He ruled the Kingdom of Poland until his death in 1492, so like uh, 50 years. He's still considered like a national hero in Poland and Lithuania today. He's considered like probably the greatest king in their history. Among his accomplishments is he destroyed the Teutonic Order, which was a military order of knights formed to fight the Crusades. And by doing so, he added Prussia to the Polish territory. Okay. I read that whole story and it's like a lot of military shit and we don't need, it doesn't matter. But oh, okay. it's a big, like, it's don't cool. fucking worry about it. It's fine. Like he, he destroyed a whole knightly order. That's kind of, you know, not everyone can say that. Um, <laughs> I certainly can't. <laughs> I certainly cannot. Uh, he also just increased Poland's overall wealth and status. And his reign is seen like he was just seen as like a good king. It was peaceful time. It was a prosperous time. Blah, 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 blah. Um, he died of unknown causes on June 7th, 1492, when he was 64 years old. And when he died, it was a hot day. It was June. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he started decaying quickly. So they were like, fuck, we need to hurry. And they threw his body into a wooden coffin that they then like covered in tech. I saw it listed as textile. I don't know what that means by like cloth okay. and then coated the whole thing in resin. I think they're trying to like seal it. Seal it. Okay. Mm. uh turns out that didn't work super well so let's just let's make put it like an oven that. wouldn't it oh okay yeah, well, we'll get what there. year is this 1492 okay yeah. acceptable they're you know they were doing their best they were doing their best. <laughs> turns out as we will find out in the story their best their best was, not was very good <laughs> their best wasn't good enough no it's uh, fine we've all but we've anyway passed it yeah, <laughs> but so so they buried him in the Wawel Cathedral in Krakow, okay. and he remained there undisturbed for about 500 years. Oh. And then in 1973, a cardinal by the name of Karol Josef 
Weichla, I think is how you pronounce it. And let's put a pin in that guy because uh well we'll we'll get back to him. Jesus. Um, he was a cardinal and he was the Archbishop of Krakow at the time. And he decided to allow a group of 12 researchers to enter the tomb of um Casimir for Jagion. The goal was at this point, uh the cathedral had become the Holy Cross Chapel, and they wanted to like restore the chapel. So they were like, go into the tomb, see what's up, see what you need to like it was a team of 12 conservationists and researchers. They're like, go in there and like see what we need to do to like preserve what we can of this. Okay. And we want to like restore it, rebuild it. And this was kind of a big deal because this was Poland in the 70s, which was, it was a socialist country. It was under the Soviet sphere of influence. Okay. So religion was like a fraught subject at the time. And it was very difficult to get permission to go into like religious sites like that. Mm. Uh, They were usually just like banned. Okay. Um, but this cardinal, Josef Wojtla, he had enough pull. He was able to, to get this done. So on April 13th of 1973, these researchers, they opened the tomb. And as they entered, they started joking about the possibility of a curse, which just... Like, don't, don't joke about, like, don't tempt fate. You don't want That's like joking about like the boat sinking as you're like hopping on the Titanic. Like, I feel like it's just like, I I would be like, you need to get out, get out right now. Go home. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, and as we'll find out, I mean, it it did kind of catch up with them. So Mm. once they were inside, they discovered that the coffins of both Casimir and his wife, Elizabeth had completely rotted away. And that the bodies inside were entirely decayed. They just went in, they opened it up, and it was just like rotten wood. And like, it was just this dank kind of cavern. Uh, but they got to work. They started restoring everything. They they pulled out Casimir and Elizabeth. They were ultimately reinterred later that year in a ceremony at the cathedral in September of that year. Okay. And then uh, the members of this conservation team just started to die. Like one after the other. Okay. Uh the following year, so remember, it's a 12-person team. The following year, 1974, four of them died. Another died in 1975. By the end, I think within about a five-year period, 10 of the 12 members of the team had died. Jesus. So this is, of course, the curse of the tomb of Casimir for Jagion. Well, what the hell happened? Like, why did they all die? Was it a curse? Was it an ancient prophecy? Or could it have possibly been something called Aspergillus flavus, which is a deadly fungus whose spores cause aspergilliosis, a rapidly invasive infection of the respiratory tract. That's what I was going to be like. Was it just like black mold? I looked it up. It's not actually black mold. It's like in the family of black mold. Mm. But it's, you know, they they went the way of Brittany Murphy is, is what happened. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, allegedly, there's. Uh, we, I'm not even gonna get it. Okay. Yeah. But wait. <laughs> that's that's a can of worms we do not need to open. But yeah. Um. But yeah. So the spores of this Aspergillus flavus they cause a rapidly invasive infection of the respiratory tract. They also embed themselves in the liver, and they're highly carcinogenic. So mm. bad news. Um, so there's your, there's your curse. Okay. It became a really notorious story, kind of a black eye 
uh, to the to the church in Poland. But this Cardinal Wojtyla, a few years later in 1978, was selected to become Pope John Paul II. And when he was, or when they were releasing footage to like the media to celebrate him becoming named Pope John Paul II, they actually used footage of his officiation at Casimir's reinternment, and people were like. Mm. Maybe not the best taste, but Let's, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. but you're the Pope. I guess you can do <laughs> do your thing. So there you go. That's the curse of Casimir for Jagiellon. Okay. Okay. The second one. Uh, this is uh, the curse of Tamerlane's tomb. Okay. Uh, so here we got to talk about a dude, a guy named Mikhail Gerasimov. Mikhail Gerasimov. He was born in 1907 in St. Petersburg. His father was a doctor um, who then got transferred to, like, Siberia. So, like, he grew up in Siberia. Okay. Gerasimov was an artist, but he was fascinated by the intersection of sculpture and anatomy, partly because of, like, the hours he had spent going through his father's medical books. So, he began studying at the Irkutsk, or the Irkutsk medical schools at anatomical museum when he was 13 years old and he basically pioneered the practice of facial reconstruction so you see this in like true crime documentaries and stuff like uh-huh. you know you'll have a skeletonized body that was found 50 years ago and now we're trying yeah. to like release an image to like help identify it and they'll literally go in with putty and rebuild the person's face and you get this like reconstruction you've also seen this of like ancient humans and proto-humans and this is how mikhail started where he started doing the like um he started working on a neanderthal skull yes sorry i'm only laughing because this just made me think about the mummy that they found that they put in an mri machine and then were able to (laughs) create the 3d version of their vocal (laughs) that's right (laughs) and it's like we think we have what this person might have sounded sounded like and it's just like it's like a yell it's the weirdest i forgot about that I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of the same thing here. So it just made me think about that. I'm really sorry. Please continue. (laughs) But anyway, well, this Mikhail Gerasimov, he was a pioneer in this. You know, he's doing this in like the the 20s and 30s and stuff. Maybe not quite that early. It was like the 30s. He, He had developed just a really like deep understanding of like the way the contours of a skull interact with like the soft tissues of a face. Interesting. And he has studied paleontology, archaeology, anthropology, anatomy, forensic science, biology, like all of it. And he just applied it to this process. And he would do these meticulous reconstructions to determine the age, the gender, and individual characteristics of his subjects. And it got to the point where he started doing reconstructions of like famous people, famous Russians. So while he was working at the Institute of Material Culture, in, in Leningrad, Joseph Stalin commissioned him to lead an expedition to Uzbekistan. Okay. Uh, the goal was to open up the tombs of Tamerlane and other members of the Tamarid or Timurid dynasty and complete facial reconstructions of them. It's not real clear why Stalin wanted him to do this, but it was like real important to Stalin to do this. At the time. Okay. Um, I mean, Just... Stalin being Stalin, I guess. Yeah. I yeah. Stalin gonna Stalin. <laughs> Stalin's gonna Stalin, I guess. So, um, so let's talk about Tamerlane, also known as Timur. He was a Turco-Mongolian conqueror. He founded the Timurid Empire in the 14th century. Uh, the empire spanned modern-day Afghanistan, Iran, and Central Asia. He envisioned himself as a new Genghis Khan, and as even like I think it's not 
it's debatable, but it, he might have been like part of the lineage of Genghis Khan. Mm, okay. Sounds like on his mother's side. Okay. Um, and his whole goal was to like restore the glory of the Mongol Empire. Well, Tamerlane, he was undefeated in battle. He's still to this day considered one of the greatest military tacticians and commanders of all time. Okay. He's also famed for his intense brutality. Mm. It's thought his military campaigns are probably responsible for about 17 million deaths or about 5% of the world population at the time. My God. So real murdery. Uh, It's probably why Stalin really liked this guy. Yeah. He's probably like, oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, just oh. <laughs> get the O face go. <laughs> Historians <laughs> are gonna come across this podcast and be like, "The fuck is wrong with you guys?" Just Stalin. Stalin. Stalin's gonna Stalin. Stalin gonna Stalin. So, so Stalin sends Gerasimov and this team. To open these tombs, the religious leaders in the Uzbek city of Samarkand, Samarkand, they were like, no, you can't do this. They protested the excavation. They tried to stop it. A guy named Masood Aliyev, who was like the keeper of the tomb. Mm. He was like, look at the words above the goddamn tomb, because above the tomb were the words, when I rise from the dead, the world shall tremble. No, don't do it. Like, it's like making Hard pass. It's like making the joke as you're going in. Like, you're just like, don't do it. Yeah. So Gerasimov is a good Soviet was like, I don't believe in this superstition, but let's just double check with the Kremlin and see what they say about this. Okay. So he sent uh, like a telegram back to the Kremlin and the response was for him to immediately arrest this uh, Masood Aliyev for spreading false rumors and to open the tomb immediately. This has some real like Raiders of the Lost Ark vibes. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. What's in the tomb that Stalin needs to win right. the win, you know. So on June 19th, 1941, the date is very important. Okay. They went into the tomb and there's like a big jade slab on top of the sarcophagus. And they moved this big jade slab off. And inside they found a second inscription that read, whomsoever opens my tomb shall unleash an invader more terrible than I. Grasmos is like, whatevs. And he pulls the skull out and he starts his facial reconstruction. Three days later on June 22nd, Nazi Germany broke the non-aggression pact with the USSR and launched Operation Barbarossa. Which was, of course, the invasion of the Soviet Union. The invasion of the Soviet Union led to about 30 million deaths on the Eastern Front alone. And if you've ever read about the Battle of Stalingrad, it's like if you can imagine hell on Earth, like that's what that was. Yeah. But meanwhile, (laughs) good old Gerasimov's just off here in Uzbekistan doing his thing while all this is going on. He finally finished his reconstruction and Tamerlane was reburied under an Islamic burial procedure in November of 1942, which was coinciding with like the turning point in the Battle of Stalingrad, which is uh, was considered the turning point where the Nazi or where the Russians finally started to defeat the Nazis. Okay. So thanks, Gerasimov, for unleashing Hitler onto the Soviet Union. (laughs) um after the war grasimov no nothing bad happened to him he ended up heading the laboratory of plastic reconstruction at the institute of ethnography until his death 20 years later among his most famous reconstructions was the face of ivan the terrible in 1953 Mm. and then in 1991 they actually used his methods on the remains of czar nicholas ii's family to clarify their identities oh yeah so there you go 
That is the curse of the tomb of Tamerlane. Okay. And now this is for something different. (laughs) It's time for something different Uh, (laughs) and much, much more detailed. This is, of course, the tomb of Tutankhamun. Okay. King Tut's tomb. Tutankhamun. He was an Egyptian pharaoh from, uh, I think he lived from 1341 BC to 1323 BC. Okay. If you do the math, not very long. Yeah. Yeah. 19 years. He was an Egyptian pharaoh over the new kingdom of Egypt. So the new kingdom was a period between the 16th and 11th centuries BC, covering the 18th, 19th, and 20th dynasties of ancient Egypt. Okay. Um, It was followed by the second intermediate period, which was succeeded. No, it followed the second intermediate period and was succeeded by the third intermediate period. And as I was reading about it, I was like, there's all these different periods. And I was like, who cares? No one cares. So <laughs> the e- new kingdom. Egyptologists <laughs> are like tearing out their headphones. I, I care. God damn it. <laughs> fucking Stalin's O face. And then now. <laughs> now we've pissed off the Egyptologists. I know. Really? E- is yeah. that how you say it? Egyptolog- Egyptologists? I think, I think that's correct. But you know what? Fuck you, nerds. <laughs> No one cares, nerd. <laughs> um, oh, we're punchy uh, in 2023. Yeah, okay, apparently. yes. <laughs> Sorry, continue, please. Uh, but so, <laughs> what was the new kingdom? Well, basically, this was like Egypt at kind of its height. Okay. They were they had expanded into the Levant and they'd gone as far south as the kingdom of Nubia, which would now be like the Nubian deserts, kind of southern Egypt, northern Sudan area. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was like its greatest territorial extent. Tutankhamun, also known as Tutankhamun, Kauatan, um, he was born in the reign of Akhenaten, whose reign saw a dramatic shift in ancient Egyptian religion. So Akhenaten was a real big fan of a god named Aten. And he basically shifted the Egyptian religion into a monotheistic focus on this god Aten, which yeah. was like a big deal. Uh, he also moved the capital to uh, Amarna, uh, wherever that is. Now, no one knows exactly the relationship between Tutankhamun or Tutankhaten and Akhenaten. It's generally thought that Tutankhamun was, is the son of Akhenaten. Uh, there are inscriptions that refer to him as the son of Akhenaten's father, Amenhotep III, okay. which means he would be Akhenaten's brother. But most people don't think that's the case. Uh, some suggest that his mother is Mikaten, Mikataten. Again, I, I apologize. Okay. Um, she was the second daughter of Akhenaten and Nefertiti based on a relief at the um, royal tomb of Amarna. So basically, it's like there's lots of like sisters fucking in this. Like his mother. I mean, to to be fair, not that different from other. No, well, exactly. Yeah. So. But, no no judgment yeah i mean you know we've all seen game of thrones no. <laughs> yeah we get it you we know all, we all know we, how, how the targaryens uh, yeah we, we we get how you want to roll with that shit i mean judgment clearly but not anymore than in the context of Right. Well, I mean, they're doing this shit in Europe. Yes. Just look at the Habsburgs. But anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's also possible that his mother was Nefertiti herself, although people really don't think that's the case. I think that's been pretty much debunked. Okay. Um, They have done genetic analysis of Tut's mummy. The mummy says that his father is the mummy who's 
has been identified as Akhenaten, and that his mother is a mummy from another tomb referred to as the, quote, younger lady. Genetic analysis shows that the younger lady is the full sister of Akhenaten. Okay. So, brother, sister. Okay. That comes from that. Um, Nobody knows her identity beyond that, but it's sort of been proven she cannot be Nefertiti, so. Okay. Anyway, like... Let's just say that Tutankhamun did not win the genetic lottery. Okay. So he ascended to the throne between eight and nine years old. Um, he reigned for about nine years, died very young. Okay. Um, while Pharaoh, he took he supposedly took counsel with the god Ammon and then made several endowments that enriched the priests of the cults of Ammon. He commissioned new statues of the deities from the best metals available, had them embellished with gold and silver. And his biggest legacy is that he undid the religious changes of his father. So that's why you have the difference in name. Uh, Akhenaten took the Aten part of the name from this god Aten that he was like, this is the only god that you're allowed to worship. So uh-huh, that's why uh-huh. Tutankhaten was called Tutankhaten. Okay. Once he undid what his father was doing, he said, no, we're going to go back to this polytheistic religion that we've all known. He changed his own name to go back to Tutankhamun because the Amun is, comes from the god Amun. Okay. Um, so again, like, I don't ask me a lot of questions about Egyptian okay. mythology and religion. That That's about what I know. <laughs> <laughs> I just looked up to see if there was any like real like you know reconstruction of King Tut and it's it's unfortunate. It is. It really is. Um t- yeah. going back to like the Garrisonov or whatever guy. I think that it's a digital reconstruction I think that you're uh-huh. looking at. Uh-huh. I mean, again, it's not great. He was doing his best. He was um, t- <laughs> <laughs> um I just want to say that the title of this Guardian, well, it's not the title, but the subtitle of this article from the Guardian says, computer scan images of the real boy Pharaoh are crass and morbid. (laughs) I think the article I read, it was like the ugly face of Tutankhamun or something. Yeah. I mean, it's just clearly the guy and I'm going to get into it now. So. Great. Tutankhamun, he was of slight build. He was about five foot six. He had an overbite that was common in his royal line. Okay. Um, which is different than the Habsburgs. They had the underbite, the Habsburg mm-hmm. jaw. So and that jaw. Um, in, in art, he's often depicted as being super skinny, almost skeletal, hunched over with an elongated skull. Uh-huh. Um, they he's also the only pharaoh who's ever like depicted to be sitting while doing physical activities like archery. So this has led people to believe he may have had the condition like Marfan syndrome, perhaps. Oh, okay. But, they don't, I, I mean, I think they don't know this for sure. Did um, did Lincoln have that? Is that what they thought Lincoln had? They, I think there's there's theories that he might okay. have had it. Okay. okay. Um, but, but I don't think it's been confirmed. Okay. Um, they've also done with genetic research on the mummy. I mean, the guy was just he was not doing well. Uh, he had a condition that had led to like he had enlarged breasts. So there's some sort of hormonal something going on okay um he had necrosis from a broken foot the broken foot was probably a genetic disorder like Mm. like a bone disorder in his foot um this meant he walked with a limper cane the necrosis might have contributed to his death he also suffered from malaria at least at the time he died he had malaria and colar disease which can cause the feet to swell which is why he was probably 
sitting in all these it just the guy couldn't move um it's also been theorized that he and his family suffered from epilepsy and were prone to seizures mm. of course i mean no one knows for sure but it sure seems likely that these problems were probably at least in some part due to inbreeding mm. you know like i said his parents were brother and sister his own wife was his half sister both of their children were stillborn oh yeah but even with his injuries and ailments he was a fairly active guy he was an avid hunter. He actually had an entire palace built near the Sphinx where he would go for hunting. So, like, you know, he's he's trying, you know, but yeah, again, just did not win the genetic lottery. Um, he ended up having a hunting accident and injured his leg, broke his leg, essentially, two days before his death. And that was probably like the, oh. the straw that broke the camel's back. Kind of is thing. there anything? I mean, granted, we don't know anything, but is there because, you know, that kind of inbreeding won't just lead to like physical issues it could also lead to other stuff is there any yeah yeah thank you i didn't find anything but it's like who knows you know there's not a lot of records i don't even know how they would have yeah he reigned for such a short time he's really like he had a very undistinguished reign the big thing was undoing the religious stuff that his father had done okay that's basically his only legacy, it sounds yeah. like. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Because, um, obviously, if you look at, like, some of these Habsburg monarchs and some of the British monarchs, like, you you do see Yeah, they were not stuff. doing well. Again, either. it's like, the, it's like the, what's the, what is it they say about the Targaryens? Like, you know, every time a Targaryen's born, the gods flip a coin. It's either oh. genius or madness. Oh, okay. So... <laughs> I, I relate everything to Game of Thrones. So. Yeah, I was like, you lost me, but I'm going to take mm-hmm. your word for it. Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, poor guy. He, you know, I mean, he got to be Pharaoh, so that's something. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, we don't know exactly how he died. There's no surviving record. So there's a lot of debate about the issue. It's probably a combination of things. Uh, and then like the the sort of the tipping point was this broken leg and the fact that he had malaria at the end probably just weakened him so much that he died yeah um, but others have argued that he could have had sickle cell anemia okay. some of the symptoms that have been attributed to him fit sickle cell anemia it was also thought at one point that he had been murdered because there was a hole in the back of his skull and bone fragments inside of it but they think that this was they discovered this in the 1968 x-ray of the mummy but they think that was actually uh b- both a process of the mummification process mm-hmm. and of the unwrapping so they think that was post-mortem mm-hmm. okay. so it's more likely he died of some sort of natural causes so part of the the death ritual was all of his organs were removed and pre- preserved in resin soaked bandages and then a 24 pound solid gold portrait mask was placed over his head and shoulders and then he was laid in a burial chamber in a series of nested containers so it, you know think of it like russian dolls and the smallest right. ones are like there were three golden coffins and then a granite sarcophagus and then after that four wooden shrine gilded wooden shrines the largest of which basically filled the burial chamber okay and then they put him in his tomb and the tomb is known by tomb number kv62 it's located in the valley of the kings which is a valley on the west bank of the nile opposite thebes which is now a city called luxor okay um, in egypt it's in the middle of what's called the Theban Necropolis, which was the burial ground for royals and nobles during this new kingdom period. And the Valley of the Kings is known to contain uh, 63 tombs and chambers of various sizes. Okay. I'm not going to get too much into the description of the tomb itself, so I'll skip that part. But buried with Tut, 
and as is the case with most of these pharaohs, were all sorts of funerary objects and possessions, coffins, clothing, furniture, jewelry. You know, this was the Egyptian belief that they took everything with them into the afterlife. So that's... Mm -hmm what was going on there, but it was a small tomb. It was much more densely packed than others like it. And in fact, the tomb is weird as far as Egyptian tombs go. Okay. Uh, for one thing, it's buried underground, which was not common. It's also much smaller than most tombs. What they think is that it was actually a tomb that was probably not meant for royal use. Mm. Um, it was probably like some noble's tomb or might've even just been like a storage room or something, you know, but then he died so suddenly and oh. so young that they were like, what do we have available? Right. Okay. But the fact that it's such a weird tomb is why it became so, is, it has become so iconic because the tomb's low position, which was dug into the valley floor, meant that it was hidden by debris caused by flooding. Um, so this left it protected, and it's why it remained the absolute best-preserved pharaonic tomb that has ever been found. Okay. Um, most of these tombs have been raided over and over and over again. Mm. So once you got into the tomb as like a Egyptologist in the 20th century, it's like everything had been taken. Right. Once they got into Tut's tomb, everything was still there. Um, and that's why it's so famous. Okay. But anyway, so the tomb, so let's get into the discovery of the tomb. It was rediscovered in 1922 by a team of archaeologists led by Egyptologist Howard Carter. I'm just gonna, let's just say um, the colonial aspect of this, white people going in and raiding uh, the cultural artifacts of uh, another, let, I'm not gonna get into it, but it just hovers over the whole thing. Right. Let's just... It's let's acknowledge there. it let's acknowledge it okay it was rediscovered in 1922 by a team of archaeologists led by howard carter so at this time in the early 20th century egypt was essentially a de facto british colony managed by a british consul general egypt had its own like government but it was pretty much like um a puppet government to the british to this british consul general mm. and i think this was especially true after world war one with the dissolution of the ottoman empire and britain's just kind of took over everything right um for a few years at least so the field of egyptology which was you know these excavations was overseen by what was called the antiquity service which was a department of the egyptian government i.e the british government right so new excavations of ancient science were dependent on a system called partage or quote division of funds um or division of fines sorry so what this meant was museums or private collectors would fund a dig in exchange for a share of the artifacts usually half so half of the artifacts would go to the antiquity service of egypt and be housed in the egyptian museum in cairo and the rest would go to whatever rich british museum or private collector had funded the dig. okay so that was just the practice at the time by the time of Tut's discovery, dozens of other tombs had already been opened. Most were found to have been plundered over the centuries, like I said. It's also important to point out that at the time, or at least in like the early part of the 20th century, like native Egyptians kind of didn't care about this stuff. They were just like, whatever, these old tombs, you know, these old tombs, do what you want with them. Right. They sort of became a rallying point for Egyptian identity a few years later. But at the time, it was like, they were like, whatever, let these white British people come in and do what they want. This is, this is just like, just piles of rocks as far as we're concerned. Right. So this Howard Carter, he had come to Egypt originally as an artist. 
assisting in recording Egyptian tomb art. This led to him being trained as an archaeologist. He was ultimately brought on as an inspector with the Antiquity Service. As inspector, it was his job to restore and protect existing tombs while searching for and excavating others. While he was working for the Antiquity Service, his patron, because again, these things are being funded by uh, rich people, Mm-hmm. His main patron was a guy named Theodore M. Davis, who was a rich American lawyer who had like an interest in Egypt. I wrote down Egypt fetish, but that was me editorializing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, you know, Carter had managed to make a few small finds and he cleared out a few previously unexplored tombs, but nothing major. Um, now, this Theodore Davis, he was known to put a lot of pressure on the excavators to work very fast. And so, this doubled the number of discoveries in a short period of time, but it also led to a lot of careless treatment. Mm. Um, so they would get in, they would they would haul stuff out of these tombs. They weren't careful about cataloging stuff. Things would get confused. So one tomb, there was number KV-55. It was so poorly handled that even to this day, they don't know whose tomb it was because that was just like destroyed by the excavators. Jesus. Um, okay. <laughs> now, like I said, Tutankhamun. He was mostly unknown to the Egyptologists at the time. They knew who he was, but he was just, he wasn't considered a major pharaoh. You know, like I said, he didn't have much of a legacy. But they noticed they're like, we can't find his tomb. Like, we're finding all these other pharaoh's tombs, but where the fuck is this guy's tomb? Like, he wasn't even important. Why is his tomb so hard to find? Right. Um, it was like, it's got to be here somewhere in this valley, because that's where everyone else's tombs are. It never occurred to anyone that they actually could have put it underground because it just wasn't the pro the wasn't the process for these things they did eventually in 1907 find a pit designated kv54 that contained a few objects with his name so they thought well maybe this pit this is all that's left of the tomb right you know that was just they were like okay well i guess i guess that's tut's tomb you know pretty Mm -hmm. pretty uneventful and at this point all of the pharaohs that they knew through history their tombs have been accounted for so 1912 this um theodore davis who was the patron he wrote quote i fear the valley of the tombs is now exhausted Mm. um Meanwhile, Howard Carter had left the antiquity service in 1905 after a scandal where he used Egyptian guards to eject a bunch of French tourists from a closed site. <laughs> I'm just imagining all these like obnoxious French people. And he's just like, get them, get them the fuck out. And that, that they were like, shame on you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How dare no, I th- you? I think the French people were like, how dare you point your muskets at us, sir? Right. And so, yeah, he ended up having to resign. But he ended up going just to work for a private collector, a guy named George Herbert, 5th Earl of Carnarvon. Um, Another rich dude who's like, here's a bunch of money to find Egypt shit that I want to put in my living room, basically. Okay. So this Theodore Davis, he relinquished his, what they call his concession, which is like a contract, I guess, allowing him to dig. He relinquished his concession on the Valley of the Kings in 1914, and this Earl Carnarvon snatched it up. But at this point, it was like, there's nothing left to find here. Mm-hmm. You know, we found everything. Mm-hmm. But they were still like, yeah, but there's that Tut guy. We never found his tomb. So they were going to, like, keep looking to see what else they could find. But then, of course, World War One happened. That kind of put a big delay in everything. Finally, 1917, Howard Carter, being funded by this Earl of Carnarvon, he started a project where he was like, we're just going to scour the valley down to the bedrock. We're going to look at every last inch just to see what we find. Right. 
Um, they weren't specifically looking for Tutankhamun's tomb, but they kind of knew it was maybe still out there. They weren't convinced like Davis was that it, it, that it was just this pet that they found. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, after World War One, the Egyptian Revolution of 1919 convinced the Brits that they should get the fuck out. Uh, so they just issued the Unilateral Declaration of Egyptian Independence in February of 1922. And they were like, here's your country back. Thank you. Okay. Um, they did they did keep a lot of influence over the country particularly when it came to like foreign policy and defense and stuff Mm -hmm. but it was but they were like you're governing yourself now and this antiquities policy was also handed back to the egyptians so now the egyptians are in charge of the antiquities it's not things aren't going to the british museum and stuff okay there was really only one section of this valley of the kings that they had not fully searched yet that was still covered in debris. It was a hard area to clear because it was really close to where all the tourist traffic was. Um, And it just seemed like just piles of rocks. It didn't seem like there was anything there. Mm-hmm. Um, So this Earl Carnarvon, who was like pretty, sounds like he was pretty pissed off because he had gotten this concession to look and then there was nothing left to find. He was just, he wanted to abandon the site. And so Howard Carter was like, look, I will f- cover the final expenses myself just to like do this last little bit. And the Earl of Carnarvon was like, okay, okay, okay. Like he was impressed that Carter didn't want to give up. So he's like, I'll, I'll give you money for one more season. Okay. And so the, the digging season in Egypt is sort of between November and February, uh, because if you get into like February through September, October, it's just too hot. Okay. So it's like wintertime is when they would dig. So they started kind of early in November of 1922. They're working this area and then a worker just moved a rock. And underneath, they found a step. They're like, where does that go? And it proved to be the beginning of the tomb entrance. Uh, The legend was, there's a legend that it was actually found by a little boy digging outside the work area. Mm. That's not true. It was a worker that they had hired. Okay. But they were like, this is something. So they go down there. They go down to the bottom of the stairs and they find a doorway that is sealed in limestone and plaster. Carter cut a peephole in it to inspect the passage beyond. And he saw that it was just like filled with shit. Because he was like, is that rubble? Like, what is that? He couldn't tell what it was. But he's like, but this is something. We found something. We don't know what this is, but it's something. But Carnarvon, this Earl of Carnarvon, had gone back to England. So Carter was like, stop, stop, stop. He's going to want to be here. So let's refill the pit to keep other people out of it. We know where it is. And I'm going to send word to this Carnarvon to like get his ass back here. Okay. Um. So within a couple of weeks, he had come back with his daughter, Evelyn. In the meantime, Carter asked his friend, Arthur Callender, who is another archaeologist and an engineer, to kind of come on as his assistant. Once Carnarvon and his daughter got back, they went, they dug out the pit again or the stairs again they went back downstairs and they looked close more closely at the doorway seal and they saw that it was inscribed with Tutankhamun's name so they were like we found the tomb this is the tomb jackpot jackpot exactly and once they got that door open the quote debris in the passageway was just a bunch of like rich shit it was like all the stuff that you know and it, it was actually like a bunch of stuff that was labeled with the names of other kings. So it's like the poor Tut. It's like they used his tomb as like storage space for a bunch of surplus stuff. Oh wow. <laughs> um, like, but still uh... they were like, this like look at all the shit. Like this is the stuff that's almost always like stolen. 
Right, right. Um, and and it had been broken. They they could tell from damage to the door that it had been broken into. I think they said two times. But whoever broken in didn't take much. And this was and like and there was like ancient break-ins, like you know from thousands of years, thousands of years ago or whatever. Okay. So they got in. They started cataloging what's in there, and they had it was literally just jammed. Like imagine just like a storage unit, <laughs> right? Like storage wars, but it's like tomb wars. <laughs> but exactly, Great. they're just like working their way through all the shit, and they find another sealed doorway. Um, and uh, so Carter later he wrote a book. It was co-written by a guy named Arthur Crutenden Mace, um, who also was part of the team. Okay. And they described the scene like this, quote, with trembling hands, I made a tiny breach on the upper left-hand corner. Darkness and blank space, as far as an iron testing rod could reach, showed that whatever lay beyond was empty and not filled like the passage we had just cleared. Candle tests were applied as a precaution against possible foul gases. And then, widening the hole a little, I inserted the candle and peered in. Lord Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn, and Calendar standing anxiously beside me to hear the verdict. At first, I could see nothing. The hot air escaping from the chamber causing the candle flame to flicker. But presently, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues, and gold. Everywhere, the glint of gold. And so Carnarvon asked Carter, like, can you see anything? And Carter famously answered, yes, wonderful things. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they get in. They realize... This is another antechamber. It's not the burial chamber itself. And it's also just filled with stuff. Um, and this is Tutankhamun stuff. They get in there and then they find two more doorways that have been blocked with plaster before being breached by these ancient robbers. One was open, revealing another chamber filled with pharaoh crap. Okay. Um, and when I say pharaoh crap, I mean like <laughs> gold statues and stuff like okay. Like treasure, really. Right, 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 right. Um, the other had been resealed. And they were like, this has to be the burial chamber. And at some point, before they were like technically supposed to, they actually did get into this burial chamber. Okay. Um, they found all the shrines and the like succession of coffins going big to small and then got down to the sarcophagus. They went in because Carter wanted to make sure it hadn't been raided. I guess he had like gotten burned once before. Okay. Where he had like a bunch of press and they were like, it's kind of like a Al Capone's vault situation. Yeah. It sounds like, mm-hmm. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but they weren't really supposed to go in. Like at this point they were supposed to get the antiquity service and have it inspected and all this stuff. Okay. But they went in, just kind of looked and then like threw some plaster back up. Just right. Like, they were like, shh, shh, shh. Yeah. Yeah. And then they started to clear the tomb, which was a massive effort because moisture had gotten in. So all the wood was warped. A bunch of glue had dissolved. Leather and textiles were starting to decay. And then everything was covered in a strange pink film, which also makes me think mold, but I don't know what that was. I, pink is like one of the least creepy colors, but we were both like, ew, <laughs> ew. about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so they're just being like super careful. Okay. And, and Carter decided they really needed to kind of do like this massive restoration before they started moving stuff to Cairo because he thought it was like this shit's going to fall apart. Right. So he called up a guy named Albert Lithgow, who's the head of the Egyptian expedition of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. 
and asked, hey, can you send some other people over? So that's when this Arthur Mace came over, who was a conservation specialist. Also a guy named Harry Burton, who is considered the best archaeological photographer. I'll post some of his stuff in social media. Okay. Um, an architect named Walter Hauser. And then an artist named Lindsley Hall, who was there to draw like scale drawings of okay. the chambers. Other experts volunteered, a guy named Alfred Lucas, who's a chemist. A guy named James Henry Breasted and Alan Gardner. They were scholars of Egyptian languages. They were there to translate any inscriptions or mm-hmm. uh, hieroglyphics or anything. And then a guy named Piercy Newberry, who was a botanist, and his wife, Essie, who helped with the preservation of the textiles. So a whole fucking team of people. Mm-hmm. They started cleaning the tomb on December 16th. Meanwhile, it hit the press. And this started a phenomenon called, quote, tut mania. Okay. <laughs> it was an outgrowth of the pre-existing Egyptomania, which had already kind of gripped like Western countries. Right. And we talked about this. If you go back to my H.P. Lovecraft episode, we talked a little bit about it then. Because if you remember, Lovecraft wrote that story with Harry Houdini. It was like trapped with the pharaohs. Right. You know, so it's like that was kind of part of this whole Egyptomania. Because okay. it's just like it's exotic and it's spooky right. and ancient. And it's so and, different. The customs are so different from. Right you know westerners and well and it's their like, interpretation of death and it's all just but i think also like it said. was just exotic and like treasure hunting yeah know? yeah for sure um so like you know they're not unless i think of it as like raiding ancient cultures that maybe should be left alone but you know again that's just hovering over everything right um this tomb which has been discovered which is super well preserved like way more than any other tomb they've ever found, became just massively famous. Carter and Carnarvon, Earl Carnarvon, both became celebrities. And then Tutankhamun, who was like the least distinguished pharaoh in history, yeah, is now a household name worldwide. And he's known as King Tut. That's yeah. where the name King Tut comes. Tourists started flocking to the tomb, which complicated the excavation because they're like, get out of the fucking way. Like, <laughs> just people trying to push into their business. And then all these like high powered rich people and government people are like, I demand entrance to the tomb. And they're like, like, you can't say no. no. So- <laughs> <laughs> like, we're working, weirdos. Yeah, apparently, if, you, if you're if you an Earl of Shrevenborn, blah, 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 you can do whatever you want. So, like, Carter later estimated that they spent a quarter of their work time dealing with those assholes. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh my other God. examples of tap mania um, at the l- nearby Winter Palace Hotel in Luxor, which was formerly Phoebe's, uh, they created a dance called the Tutankhamun Rag. <laughs> um in the u.s dorks. okay <laughs> nerds in the u.s hollywood started cranking out a bunch of egypt themed b movies and then uh-huh. there was a novelty song called old king tut that became uh, popular sure hey mister yeah can you tell me where king Tutut and come in tomb is <laughs> why tut 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 my boy you mean King Tut on Commons, too. Ah, that's the man. Do you know anything about him? Do I know anything about him? Well, just you listen to me. Three thousand years ago, in history we know, King Tut and Common ruled a mighty land. And then, of course, because, you know, capitalism and whatnot, uh, they started making replicas of all the goods they were finding in the tomb and then just started mass producing them and selling them. So people are like, look at my shit that I have in my living room from King Tut's tomb. It's like, you know, made in Akron or whatever. Right, right, right. Made in (laughs) Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, 
people in Egypt were a little bit flummoxed. Egyptomania in general, pre Tutankhamun, because they were like, this is just like old shit that we don't care about. Right. But then this Egyptian revolution happened in 1919, and suddenly Egypt started looking for like a national identity. And mm. the thing about Egypt at the time was, and, and I think to a degree to this day, it was a bit of a clash of cultures because there was a lot of Greek influence still there. There's obviously an Arabic Muslim sort of majority. There's also Coptic Christians. And so they're trying to like, where's our national identity that stitches all of these people together? And they're like right. ancient Egypt, the pharaohs. So this became, like I said, like a point of pride for Egyptian people. This Earl Carnarvon in particular, uh, he really like encouraged the publicity because he saw it as a way to help defray the costs of the exposition. Mm. So he started licensing stuff to the media. And in 1923, he actually signed a contract with the Times of London and granted their reporter, and Arthur Merton, exclusive press access, which pissed mm. off all the other newspapers. I'm sure. I guess that was like kind of a scandal. Okay. So the curse. Right. Yeah. Curse that's of what, That's Common. what this episode is about. I'm going to be straight up honest with you. It's a little anticlimactic. Okay. <laughs> As I got into it, I was like, all this stuff just about the finding of the tomb is way more interesting than the curse. Okay. But anyway, the curse of Tutankhamen. By February of 1923, the antechamber was mostly entirely cleared. And this is when Carter and Carnarvon formally opened the burial chamber, pretending, of course, they hadn't already done so. Okay. Like, oh, that plaster that looks new? No, don't look at that. Totes no. old. Poets old, super old. Super uh, old. <laughs> so they formally open this burial chamber. And then this is where they find another chamber like attached to it. This is where they find all the embalmed organs. Carter actually had that reboarded because he was like, we don't want to focus on that. So they didn't actually open that part again until 1927. They let, you know, this reporter come in and kind of view everything. And then they close the tomb for the summer season on February 26th. Again, because like I said, it just gets to be too hot in Egypt to be digging. So local workmen were hired to rebury the tomb entrance to keep people out. Some objects had already been removed and conserved and were on their way to Cairo. Days after the tomb was resealed, Carnarvon, this Earl Carnarvon, accidentally cut open a mosquito bite on his cheek while he was shaving. Um, the wound became infected, and after weeks of a deteriorating condition, he died on April 5th of blood poisoning oh, and pneumonia. Shit. His health had been bad for decades, but this captured the public imagination. People were like, oh my God, it's a curse. Mm. This is, of course, again, in the context of there are already like Egyptomania and like I mean I talked about it with Lovecraft you know weird tales and stuff like that right there's all these fictional works out there about vengeful Egyptian spirits and ancient curses you had Lovecraft's story under the pyramids also called imprisoned with the pharaohs it's the one he wrote with Houdini that came out in 1924 so just a couple years later, like the next year actually right there was also a couple true stories there was there was a guy named Walter Ingram I didn't look too deeply into this but apparently he bought a mummy in 1888 and then died so people are like, the mummy's cursed. Mm. There's also an ancient coffin lid called the Unlucky Mummy. It was acquired by the British Museum in 1889 and had become source of folklore saying it had caused the sinking of the Titanic. This all stemmed from a writer named Bertram Fletcher Robinson, who had researched the coffin lid while writing for the Daily Express in 1904. It sounds like he might have had some mental illness issues. He became convinced that the coffin lid was cursed, and then he died three years later at the age of 36. So people are just primed to believe right. in the Egypt curse. Right. So, and it is like weird that Carnarvon just 
like mosquito bite dead yeah just six weeks died later. yeah i mean it's um, weird the people are coming out of the woodwork. Um, so an author slash mystic slash occultist named Marie Corelli, she claimed to have warned Carnarvon that he was in mortal peril before he died. And then a psychic named William John Warner, popularly known as Chiro, uh, said the same thing, that he had warned Carnarvon that you're in danger. Another Egyptologist, a guy named Arthur Weigel, who had become a Daily Mail correspondent, after Carnarvon died, he claimed that he had heard Carnarvon joking as he entered the tomb. And he claims he said, he like turned to someone else and said, uh, this Arthur Weigel said, if he goes down there in that spirit, I give him six weeks to live. Basically, like he's not taking it seriously. He's not being respectful enough. And then, of course, stories became embellished over time. Later, an anthropologist named Henry Field claimed that there was a text inscribed above the doorway warning violators of certain death. In fact, no such text exists in the tomb of mm, Tutankhamun. Okay. Now, he might have been conflating because some Egyptian tombs do have written curses, but these are generally not royal tombs. And they're also from much earlier time periods. Okay. So, of course, any death, even contingentially connected to the tomb, suddenly started being treated as a result of the curse. So Carnarvon's son and heir, a guy named Henry Herbert, the sixth Earl of Carnarvon, claimed that Cairo suffered a power outage at the exact moment of his father's death, and that back in England, his father's dog let out a howl and then suddenly died. Okay. So sounds like, allegedly, like, I need receipts for that. Okay. Um, Carter himself recounted a story that he had bought a canary um, at the beginning of the digging season and he had the canary like he would take it to the digs just in its cage and the egyptian workmen saw the presence of this canary as good luck and when they uncovered the tomb they called it quote the tomb of the bird but then after they had breached the tomb a goddamn cobra got into carter's house and ate the bird so the egyptian workers were like oh not good luck no no oh, that's a, that's a bad omen because okay. A lot of the emblems on the stuff in uh, King Tut's tomb, had, there were like emblems of cobras, like as a protection <sighs> motif. Okay. A, guy, a railroad executive named George J. Gould visited the tomb. Uh, he died the follow suddenly the following May. Carnarvon's half-brother, Aubrey Herbert, died in September. That preservation specialist, Arthur Mace, died, I think, unexpectedly in 1928. Carnarvon's secretary, Richard Bettle, died in 1929, again, unexpectedly. But like we're getting okay, now you're getting like five years out. It's like people die, you know. That's why I say like this is a little like like I'm more inclined to believe the whole Tomorrowland's curse, you know, causing Hitler to invade Russia than uh -huh. to to make these connections. But you know, ultimately, there's between nine and twelve deaths that are sort of attributed to King Tut's curse. Okay. I like I saw different numbers and different sources. A 2002 study in the British Journal of Medicine found no real difference in mortality rates between those who had entered the tomb and those who didn't. So, okay. statistically, there's nothing there. But this supposed curse continued to fuel Egyptomania. Tut became just a massive pop culture figure up until today. Um, and of course, you have Steve Martin with the King, you know, King Tut right. song. <laughs> yeah. The Egyptian newspaper Al Aram started publishing comedic stories where. A grumpy King Tut woke from death to, like, comment on contemporary politics and stuff. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and of course, this all culminated in the release of the Universal Pictures The Mummy in 1932, starring Boris Karloff. And then, of course, the classic Brendan Fraser film from the 90s. Uh, it's peak Brendan Fraser. Peak Brendan Fraser. So the legacy continues. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2016, all 5,000 relics from Tutankhamun's tomb were finally displayed together at the Grand Egyptian Museum, which is two kilometers away from the great pyramids of Giza. So they've been displayed over time. And they even, I think a few years ago, they were like road showing some of it around. There was like King Tut's tomb, like going to different um, museums in the U S but this is, they got everything together. uh, All 5,000 relics. Wow. Howard Carter himself died on March 2nd, 1939. So well later, Um, he died of Hodgkin's disease. The epitaph on his tombstone reads, quote, may your spirit live, may you spend millions of years, you who love Thebes, sitting with your face to the north wind, your eyes beholding happiness. This was a quote taken from the wishing cup of Tutankhamun, which was one of the artifacts removed from the tomb. Hmm. And that is the story of the curse of uh, King Tut's tomb. Wow. Yeah. So. Yeah. The in, the story of them discovering the tomb is is, is more interesting. Yeah, that's like I I was fairly skeptical of the actual curse as I got into it, but I I never really like I was you know like the only thing I really knew about King Tut is the Steve Martin song, like and that there was supposedly a curse on the tomb. Right, (laughs) right, right. I never read any of this history. I found it actually really kind of fascinating. Yeah. So what do you? Yeah. So I mean, like in terms of believability scale. Well, let's go through all three of them. Let's do it. Uh, so uh, what was my first one? I'm forgetting already. That was the Hitler one, right? No. Okay. Well, this one's 100%. Uh, Casimir <laughs> for Jagiellon, uh-huh. uh, because 100% people died of fucking mold. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yes. So, so, so that one's yes. like... Yes, if you can call black mold a curse. Right, a naturally occurring phenomenon, a curse, yes. Yeah. Um, Tomorrowland's Tomb um, with Operation Barbarossa and the invasion of the Nazis of the Soviet Union. I mean, I'm going to put that at least a five. Okay. King Tut's Tomb, let's go down to a, I don't want to say zero. Okay. That's no fun. So let's let's make it a two. Okay. But the, okay. the Tomorrowland's curse, I actually do want to, like, there was a point at which I knew the King Tut stuff was going to be long, so I didn't go so into the detail on the yeah. Tomorrowland's tomb, mm-hmm. but I want to read more about that, because, like, just the timing with the invasion of the Nazis is so, and, like, those inscriptions, like, that's documented, like, that inscription yeah. of, like, an invader worse than I will rise, like, that's in that tomb. Yeah, that's. So, I'm going to actually, let's bump that up to a seven. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it. Give it a Fuck seven. It. It's a seven. Yeah. Fucking right. Awesome. Right. So there you go. Uh, okay. Well done. So I'm like, where do I where do I start with this? Okay. You know what? <laughs> I'll just start. I'll just start with this because I don't I don't technically have like a cold open. Okay. Um, but I was going to cover the 27 Club. For anybody who doesn't know at the 27 oh, Club, yeah. it is an informal list of musicians, actors, and artists who all died at the age of 27. Thing is, is that like the more I looked into it, 
it's just a series of like tragic deaths of people who became like very famous, very young. They all had either like mental health and or issues with addiction and drugs Mm -hmm. and alcohol. They were surrounded by an excess of drugs and alcohol. And enablers. Um, Yeah. And they're like absolutely 100% tragic stories to be sure. But I was like, there's not really a curse. Like it's weird. Yeah. Like it's, it's a weird thing that they died at the age of 27. But I think so much of it is like, you know, like I said, they became famous very young. Right. And I think I've known a lot of people who've had like uh, like quarter life crises mm-hmm. around that age. It and I, makes sense. Yeah. I yeah. imagine the fame, the drugs, the alcohol, the enablers, all that stuff. So. Right. Yeah, it just seems like these people who include like Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Jim Morrison, Amy Winehouse, lots more. Right. Yet they were just people who kind of got like gobbled up by the fame machine. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, just sad. It's just sad stories. Yeah. So I instead am going to cover the Superman curse. Nice. Um, because that does have some weird shit going on. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. So, well, we'll get to the believability scale on this one, too. I know a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sources sources for this are Wikipedia, kqe.com, kqed.com, Ranker, which I love Ranker's content. I hate that website. I know. Oh, I didn't do my sources. Uh, oh, I, yeah. I, do you want to do your sources? I mean, sure. Um, I was what I was going to say, you know, I'll just run through them real quick. Had histories, uh, Wikipedia, of course, history's most cursed tombs from grunge.com. The cursed tomb of Casimir Ford, Jagiel, explained from grunge.com. Facial reconstruction, Nazis in Siberia, the story of Mikhail Gerasimov from Atlas Obscura. Tutankhamen, tomb mummy, death, and Howard Carter from history.com. A long title, I'm not going to read the whole thing, from Smithsonian Magazine. And then what did King Tut look like from Life Science? But what I was going to say, I was just going to concur that like grunge.com, equally shitty as Ranker. I mean, just almost unusable. Anyway. I, yeah, the pop-ups are just yeah. unacceptable. Right. Um okay, so there's that variety e online mia.com. <laughs> yeah. Stupidest fucking name for a website. I'm so sorry, but <laughs> you should change that. And the Guardian. Okay, so let's start with just like a little bit of backstory about Superman. Okay. Uh Superman probably the most iconic of all comic book superheroes. Right. Um, he is, made his first. Hmm? I was going to say, is he like kind of the first or? He's, I'm going to get to that. Okay. So he made his first appearance in Action Comics number one, and that was published on April 18th, 1938. Uh-huh. Look, comic book nerds, do not come for me about the cover date was June. It was published on April 18th. I know the cover date says June something. Yeah. It, I, Again, who cares, nerd? Yeah. Okay. So for anyone who like was living under a rock or is a space (laughs) alien, Superman is this uh, Jor-El, right? No, Cal-El. Cal-El. Jor-El is Marlon His father. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's born on planet Krypton. He was sent to Earth on a little spaceship right before Krypton was destroyed. The ship Mm -hmm. landed in the American countryside. I always thought he was sent to Kansas. I thought it was like he went to Kansas or Nebraska. It's Iowa, isn't it? It just says in the American countryside. Huh. Like origin story is middle America, 
American countryside. The, the total sidebar, but that's like the weird like difference between Marvel and DC is that like DC is always just like vague, like Metropolis is sort of New right. York. Right. I guess like uh, Gotham City is what, like Newark or something? I don't know. I thought Gotham uh, City was supposed to be Chicago. Well, yeah, but they're like always like supposed to be on the other side of the river from each other. Oh, right, 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 right. So maybe it's like St. Paul and Minneapolis. I don't know. But, but that's the whole like... <laughs> that's the whole like dc thing is it's like never quite the u.s right and then marvel Marvel's is like, like new york, new york right. los angeles right these places yeah yeah okay so the ship landed in somewhere in the american middle america countryside baby superman was found and adopted by jonathan and martha kent who named him clark kent mm-hmm. uh superman developed various superpowers as he grew up which is like I mean, he's essentially invincible. Right. Um, The only thing that is hurtful to him is kryptonite. Mm -hmm. Um, And Jonathan and Martha raised him to use his powers for good. He ends up moving to Metropolis, Uh gets a job at the planet. planet? Yeah. What is it in Superman or Spider-Man? It doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. He gets a job. (laughs) He meets Lois Lane. He's working like, you know, he's living this double life as Clark Kent and Superman. Right. The character was created by Jerry Siegel, uh, by writer Jerry Siegel and artist Joe Schuster. Mm -hmm. And truly the character is the archetype of what we understand as the superhero. He's got this fantastic costume. Mm -hmm. He's got this alter ego. He mm-hmm. fights evil with superpowers. Mm-hmm. Wikipedia says that other superheroes that came out before Superman fit this description, but for whatever reason, Superman was the character that popularized the genre and set the conventions. It just all like locked into place with Superman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was the best-selling superhero until the 1980s. Mm. So there's that. Let's move into the curse pretty directly. The overview of the curse basically says that a series of supposedly related events that have plagued the creative people involved in various iterations of Superman media. So the comics, the TV show, the movies, everything with a particular focus on the actors who have played Superman, Mm -hmm. but has also affected the creators, producers and actors who played other roles in the Superman movies and other Superman media. Sure. Um, A couple of sources state that the curse actually goes all the way back to Siegel and Schuster, the creators, who even though they were, even though they created probably the best known superhero of all time, were never given proper royalties for the creation of the character. Mm. Um, Schuster, his career also flatlined because he began to lose his eyesight. By the 1950s, he was completely forced out of like he couldn't he could he was you know he was an artist he couldn't work in comic books right. anymore and he eventually became almost completely blind oh wow next to meet misfortune were brothers max and dave fleischer who produced some superman cartoons for paramount in the 1940s okay I couldn't find any like specific information, but apparently they had a massive falling out over what I don't know. Okay. Um, but they they're like this falling out that they had was so big that it permanently severed their partnership. They're they were brothers. They were brothers. Mm. 
Yeah. So they were like, fuck you, fuck you too. You know, I won't see you for Thanksgiving. Max, who also created heavy air quotes around created the Betty Boop character. And Mm. the reason I use heavy air quotes around created is because he actually stole her likeness and signature sound from actress Helen Kane, who actually really stole the whole thing from black jazz singer Esther Jones. Mm -hmm. Anyways, he um, Max created again, heavy air quotes, created Betty Boop. And he also produced Popeye cartoons. He ended up dying in abject oh, poverty. Yeah, Max Fleischer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I knew I knew I knew the name is mm-hmm. Popeye. Yeah, apparently he only did five more projects after working on the Superman cartoons. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Um, abject poverty. Wow. Abject poverty. Yeah. The curse is depending on who you talk to and like what their age is. Some people will say that the curse began with George Reeves. Other people are like, no, it began with Christopher Reeve, which wasn't until doing this that I was like, Oh no, it's not the same last name. One is a Reeves, <laughs> the other is a Reeves. I, I, I think I made that mistake for yeah. a long time. Yeah. So there's some like argument about who it actually starts with. But if you're really, really talking about how far back this goes, the very first actor to play Superman, a man by the name of Kirk Allen, didn't do too well. Uh-huh. Um, Kirk Allen was born John Fego Jr. to Hungarian immigrant parents. He had a pretty active career before landing the role of the Man of Steel. He appeared in Broadway shows. He mm. worked as a singer and dancer in vaudeville. Um, he ended up eventually moving to Hollywood in the 1940s, and it was there that he he struggled to gain a foothold in the industry. He mm. was playing bit parts in like low budget movies. And then in 1948, he landed the role of Superman. Okay. When asked to play Superman, Alan said, quote, I thought it was a publicity stunt. I didn't think you could ever put Superman on film. They brought people from DC Comics over and they said, he looks just like Clark Kent. They said, take your shirt off. So I did. And I flexed my muscles. And then the guy said, take off your pants. And I said, wait a minute. I was 37 when I played Superman. I picked up that girl and ran up that flight of stairs like it was nothing. Which is just <laughs> that paragraph is like all over the place, right? There's a, there's a lot happening there. Yeah, that he's like, I thought it was crazy. I didn't think you could do this. They told me to take off my shirt. I flexed my muscles, told me to take off my pants. I was like, what? I carried that girl up the stairs like nothing. And it's like, wait, okay. Stuff okay. got skipped, but yeah. <laughs> Okay. We're missing some context. Yes. Um, Alan played Superman in the first movie serial based on the character. This was 15 episodes that covered Superman's arrival on Earth, getting his Daily Planet job, meeting Lois okay. Lane, etc. Two years later, wait, where did where did the date go? Um, it doesn't matter. Two years later, <laughs> Adam Man versus Superman was released as another movie series. For your information, Alan Superman apparently was very distinct from his Clark Kent alter ego, like with disguises and everything. Hmm. Uh, I say that to put that in relief to George Reeves's Superman, who, mm-hmm. I, like, I really think they were like uh, the same person, but like, gla- you know, glasses. Yes, the glasses. Like, yeah, that was like it. So Kirk Allen does that, and he's having a good time doing that. But after playing Superman, Allen struggled to find any other work. He got offered some other comic book type roles, but Hollywood really struggled to see him as anything other than Superman. It's just the typecasting. Yeah. Yeah. He was reportedly offered the role for the 1951 television series that ended up going to George Reeves, Mm. but he turned it down. He only had a 
handful of other roles. And I think a lot of them were Superman adjacent before mm. retiring to Arizona. And he died of Alzheimer's in 1999. Mm. Mm-hmm. George Reeves. Yeah. Born George Kiefer Brewer in Woolstock, Iowa. George okay. Reeves began performing in high school. He eventually studied acting at the Pasadena Playhouse, which is like still around. Yeah. And he went on to snag a minor role in Gone with the Wind. He was one of Scarlet's like many suitors. Really? Like, yeah, he's there's I don't know how well, you know, Gone with Full the Wind. Disclosure, never watched it. Okay, then I won't even bother going into it. But yeah, and like, I think the film like starts with a shot of him. He plays a twin brother. So it's like mm. him and his twin. And I I don't know if the film like starts with him, but he's like at the beginning of the film. You know what I okay. mean? Okay. Cool. Mm-hmm. So in 1951, after Alan has been like, I don't want to play Superman in the TV show, George Reeves gets offered the Superman role in the new TV series. He almost turned it down because he, like a lot of other actors at the time, saw TV as like not really a legitimate thing. He thought that he wouldn't get the exposure and the attention that he wanted to. He didn't think anybody would see his work. He ended up taking it and his shooting schedule was really intense for Mm. this thing. And within a year, Reeves was a national celebrity. Everybody Mm. knew who he was. Everybody knew him as Superman. Right, right. The contracts for the cast of the show were pretty intense. Um, None of the actors could take any job that would interfere with filming. And the shooting schedule was technically brief. It was 13 shows shot two per week over a total of seven weeks out of the year. Mm -hmm. Okay. So seven weeks out of the year. Not that much. Not that much. But they all had, all of the actors on the show had a 30-day clause, which said that the producers could demand their exclusive services for a new season on just four weeks' notice. Mm, so it's all right. You can't book anything else. You can't book anything else. And I'll get I'll get a little bit more into that in just a second. Reeves, he's playing Superman. He's playing, you know, again, probably the most famous superhero. He's a big deal. I just want to say sidebar, like I've never watched the George Reeves Superman, but I do know that in like nerd world, like there are George Reeves partisans to this day who are like, Mm -hmm. he is the definitive Superman. Mm -hmm. He seemed to like really embody the the character and he took his job of like playing Superman very seriously. He understood Mm -hmm. that he was a role model for young people, Mm -hmm. so he wouldn't smoke anywhere where his young fans might see him. Mm -hmm. He also was very discreet about his private life, including an affair with the wife of MGM fixer Eddie Mannix. Mm, yeah. mm-hmm. He had a, I think it was a three-year affair with Eddie's wife, Tony. Yep. We'll come back to that in a second. <laughs> okay, so even though he loved his young fans, Reeves was bummed that like outside of children, nobody knew who he was. This was absolutely not true. He did have a lot of adult fans. He just had no idea. He didn't know that they existed during right. the original broadcast run of the show. Right. He also found it very, very difficult to get any non-Superman work. He was, much like Alan, so closely associated with the character that no one could see him as anything else. Yeah. Two seasons into the show, Reeves was like, I'm bored. Like, Mm -hmm. 
I'm done. I'm, I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. His yeah. salary was low. He found the character one dimensional. He was like 40, mm-hmm. you know, also. And he was like, I don't, I don't, I want to, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to quit the show. Shit or get off the pot. Yeah, yeah. Right. I want to move on to other projects. He even tried to start his own production company. He wrote a pilot for a show. At this point, the Superman producers were like, Hey, we hear you. Mm-hmm. What if we offer you five thousand dollars a week, which mm-hmm. is the equivalent now to about fifty grand a week? No. Thing is, is he's still only working eight weeks out of the year. Yeah. So. So. I mean, I, I mean that's still like a lot of money, I but. listen. I could do fine on <laughs> six. Right. I'm like, what is that? What is five thousand dollars a week? Hold on. What's the quick math on that? Forty-five grand. Yeah. Then. Right. Five thousand times. No, not times. Oh shit clear well, 5,000 times eight is yet yeah, is 40 grand. Like I could have, I could happily well, live on 40. Grand. And then, so it's 400 grand if, if you're doing the 50,000, the other. Yeah. 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 Fuck you. Give me my money. Right. right. <laughs> but I also get it. I also get the uh, thing. Totally. He's like, I'm bored. I'm fucking, I'm 40 years old. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm getting too old for this. So there's that. So he's only, he would only be working a total of eight weeks out of the year. Throughout the 1950s, Reeves was working, but it was all either Superman content or Superman adjacent. Um, And that Mm -hmm. was like appearances. He did like PSAs about stuff, but it was always as Superman. He made an appearance on I Love Lucy as Superman. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I've seen that episode. Mm -hmm. At this point, he's 45 years old. Yeah, He's dealing with financial struggles because he would like put a lot of money into a pet project, but then like not be able to get any more money. Mm -hmm. So, So, you know, he's all that stuff. Yeah. And he just, he couldn't get any work that wasn't Superman. So this probably doesn't set him up to be in the best like place feelings wise. Right. I guess I should say trigger warning. Reeves died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head on June 16th, 1959. Mm -hmm. It is widely accepted that Reeves took his own life due to depression caused by his failed career and inability to find more work. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of weird shit Mm -hmm. surrounding his death. Yep. While Reeves was upstairs, his fiance, a like a so she was like a socialite, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, her name was Lenore Lemon. She was downstairs with three other friends, and she weirdly started narrating what was going on. Apparently, her and these friends had been out. They came home. George was asleep. And they were like, you know, having a good time. He comes downstairs and he's like, shut the fuck up. Mm -hmm. And they're like, stay and have a drink with us. He has one drink and he's like, get out of my house, go away. I'm going to go to bed. And he goes back upstairs. Yeah. Yeah. Not in a good place. I don't know. It's fucking Hollywood. It's the 1950s or whatever. Like it was probably like four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So he goes back upstairs and this is when Lemon starts to narrate. And she's like, he's going, this is, these are quotes. He's going upstairs to shoot himself. There's a sound. See, he's opening the drawer to get the gun. The sound of a gunshot. And she goes, I told you, he shot himself. Jesus. Yeah. After hearing the gunshot, they wait 45 minutes to call the police. I knew that. That's mm-hmm. part of why people are like, something weird was up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When the police get there, Reeves was discovered naked, which mm-hmm. is not impossible um yeah you know the piece of shit who murdered dorothy stratton was also found naked um mm-hmm. right but it, it's a it's a little strange it's a little weird and i'm sure at right. the time 1959 it was like 
oh my God, super salacious. They found him naked. Mm-hmm. Police also found two gunshot holes in the carpet in addition to the gunshot hole in the roof, which came from him yeah. uh, ending his own life. And all of the witnesses are like, we heard one gunshot. Yeah. Okay. There apparently were also, these were found, I think, I guess at the, I think at the autopsy, because I think George's mother was like, he didn't kill himself. And so Mm -hmm. I think it was like classified as a suicide. And she was like, he didn't kill himself. She hired a private detective, he, or a lawyer, I think actually, Mm -hmm. um, to continue the investigation. He had them do another autopsy. And I think this is where they found out that he had bruises and other markings on his body, especially around his head. Mm. And there are like third and fourth hand reports of people who were not there that night, who talked to other people who were there that night that said that Lemon was actually upstairs when the gunshot rang out and that she came back downstairs going, tell them I was down here with you. Tell them I was down here with you. Mm. Again, these are hearsay, third and fourth hand but, yeah, well, but that's that. one. I mean, you did the, um, what's his name? William Desmond Taylor. Uh huh. Mystery. And the George Reeves is like sort of one of the other big, like, shit doesn't add up. Kind of yeah. Like Hollywood um, death mysteries. Yeah. Apparently, no finger, like, his fingerprints were not found on the gun. And I think they like, like, you know, people are like, there was no it's gunshot weird. residue, but I like it's un I don't know if gunshot residue is even necessarily a thing at that point. And also fingerprints, like it's I, I don't know how common it was to look for fingerprints in something that appeared to be at first glance uh, a suicide. Right. They may be just never checked. I mean, that doesn't necessarily Yeah. And I think right. they like didn't actually check it until years later. At that point, you know, the gun was in a well, paper bag in a fucking LAPD somewhere. And I mean, I think the LAPD were pretty famously like, particularly in these like celebrity stories, like, let's just wrap shit up quick. Yeah. 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 The 2006 movie Hollywoodland mm-hmm. covers all of the conspiracy theories surrounding Reeves' death. It's not a bad movie from what I remember. I know. I want to watch it. Um, it stars Ben Affleck as George Reeves. and right. Adrian Road? Yeah, as like a like a um, investigator criminal. Yeah. Like I don't know if he's like a journalist or what. Yeah, and I then, don't remember the details. I don't know if Diane Lane plays his fiance. I think she did, but again, I don't remember for okay. sure. I remember so, thinking because I remember it didn't do that well, and it kind of got not great reviews. And I watched it and was like, "No, that was I thought it was pretty good. Like it wasn't yeah. didn't blow my mind, but it's worth watching." Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna watch it. Um, mm-hmm. I'll come back and do a review. Um, okay. <laughs> at any rate, the movie covers sort of covers all of the conspiracy theories surrounding Reeves' death, but they mostly mm-hmm. like revolve around these three main theories, which are one that Reeves took his own life, mm-hmm. two that Eddie Mannix, who was rumored to have connections to the mob Mm -hmm. like either killed the actor or probably more likely had him killed not for having an affair with his wife tony but for breaking up with her and upsetting her Mm. (laughs) okay you know that's a special special kind of love i guess yeah Just would like to be a fly in the wall in that relationship. Yeah. And the third is that Lemon, his fiance, was drunk. She was disappointed. She was mad at her soon-to-be husband. I saw some stuff that said that she was like, woohoo, I'm marrying Superman and like money, money, mm-hmm. money, and all of this stuff. And then she got with him and she was like, Oh, you don't have shit. Yeah. 
So, you know, she's drunk, she's disappointed, she's mad at Reeves, so she shot him, and the 45-minute wait was the time it took to cover up the murder. Mm-hmm. Apparently- I mean, that 45-minute wait is weird. It's- That's hard it's to just very strange. And I don't know if it's just because, you know, I've listened to a lot of true crime stuff. I, I just <laughs> hear on this podcast- to have said and recorded for all of eternity. I would never wait 45 minutes after killing somebody. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. Uh, no, you gotta, you gotta like, you gotta get yeah. in front of that shit. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You gotta get in front of that shit. Like Harlan did in knives out. Right. And exactly. you know, really like you gotta be on the ball. Yeah, there. Three minutes tops. You gotta come yeah. up with a perfect crime in three minutes. <laughs> We're coming hard and fast. I saw something that, after Reeves's death, he it came out that he actually left his entire estate to Tony Mannix. Hmm. He didn't leave anything to Lenore. Hmm. Now, granted, they'd only been together for six months. Yeah, so it's maybe, completely possible. Maybe moved a little fast in that one. Right. And he just like hadn't gotten around to going to the lawyers and getting his will updated, but he left her hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. Um, Reeves death inspired the conspiracy theories and the urban legend of the Superman curse. So like it, Mm -hmm. like that was the first time that it started to be like, Oh, maybe there's something going on with the Superman curse. I think it sort of gets cemented with Christopher Reeve. For sure. Christopher Reeve, born in New York City. He studied acting at Cornell University and Juilliard. Mm -hmm. He played Superman in the 1978 to 1987 Superman film series. Um, It was a total of four movies. Mm -hmm. He's closely associated with the role as well, but... He chose to work on small films and plays in his off time. He well, it was kind of like a different world because we're coming out of like the new Hollywood era and uh-huh. like character actor era, and so like there was more room to like fuck with your star persona, right? And I am not remembering if he was in the Bostonians or if he directed the Bostonians. I don't remember, but like he was doing stuff like that. He was involved with Street Smart. He was in The Remains of the Day. Mm-hmm. Like you know. He was, he was doing his I thing. I gotta say, like, Christopher Reed, he's one of those that I think, particularly for, like, people who really only, like, sort of have this idea of him as Superman. Mm-hmm. Like, and you look at a picture of him and he was so handsome, like, square-jawed American hero handsome, that I think mm-hmm. he's very easy to dismiss as an actor. He was fantastic. Like, I watched Superman again, I don't know, within the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Like, his sense for slapstick comedy like physical humor like peter sellers type humor is so on the nose like he is so good and you don't look at him and think slapstick comic but he Mm -mm. was so fucking funny no and there is it was going around social media for a while a few years ago and it's a scene i don't remember which movie it's from which of the superman movies it's from but he's dressed as clark kent he's at lois lane's apartment and Mm -hmm. they're having a conversation and i think they're talking about Superman and Lois Lane says something, I don't know, kind of like about how dreamy Superman is. And I think she, yeah, she says something about how dreamy Superman is. And she walks off. She's like, I'm going to like, I'm going to go get changed or whatever. And it is like a three second clip, but in that three seconds, Christopher Reeve goes from playing Clark Kent 
and he like stretches into the full, like, you know, like fully mm-hmm. comes into his body, settles like deeply mm-hmm. into his, the Superman persona and like, you know, is her like, she likes me, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. but it's this, it's this beauty and it is like, so well, like rooted in truth and it's just an incredible shift. Well, they do it again in the second movie. Maybe Sorry, I'm good. let's just geek out about Christopher Reeve. Superman sure, absolutely. This is now a Christopher Reeve appreciation podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, in the second movie, because uh, I think the moment you're talking about was in the first movie. The okay. second movie is when they like get together. Uh huh. Um, and he actually, spoiler alert, he reveals to her that he's Superman. But it's that moment, like they're on vacation. It's like their honeymoon or something. I think they got married or something. Uh huh. So still doesn't know the Clark is Superman. And I remember they're in like a hotel room with like a fire and like a bearskin rug. It's like ridiculous and somehow it's like the moment he reveals that he's superman and it's that moment he takes off the glasses and just changes his posture and looks at her and she's like oh my god yeah you're fucking superman yeah and you fucking believe it like the whole ridiculous thing about like oh he can hide just behind the glasses he was such a good actor that you totally believed it and it it, and it was so subtle it was this Mm -hmm. very but it was this thing of like no this can't like they might bear a little bit of a resemblance to each other but i think that's the thing is that like well, you know when he's his, clark kent he's a little like hunched over neck is a little jutted well, out that's where the slaps i just remember him stepping into a trash can at one point like that's where all his slapstick comedy comes in but his yeah his physicality as clark kent is so different than yes. superman it's really i'm gonna see if i can find it and if i can find it we'll try to post it in the stories or something but it really was just like a, mm-hmm. a beautiful bit of acting um yeah. and like and he, there was there was nothing more than was absolutely necessary for that moment right. in that moment it was well, so he, was, great. he was just he was a great actor i mean i not to we don't need to keep going on but i just real quick want to say like i i'm not a big like merchant ivory watcher but he's fantastic in remains of the day you know everyone remembers yeah. anthony hopkins and everything oh, right, christopher right, reese right fucking great in that movie. yeah yeah and you're right like you see him at that time in his prime and it's like of course they picked him to be superman yeah i like, mean who else who else at that have. time could have done it you yeah know? late 1970s it was like you know it, everybody other people were like you know lean and you know you had you're gonna get al pacino to play superman um, <laughs> yeah well i mean just a few years later they did the whole michael keaton as batman thing but they weren't gonna do that with superman you know? no no and, like, and it works for batman like no, batman well, yeah. is all work now totally we are works. nerds now I we're the need, nerds who need to shut up um, i do no i'm not gonna shut up yet um i do also just really quickly just want to throw a little bit of appreciation out there for superman 3 uh-huh. starring uh richard pryor mm-hmm. it's like commonly derided as one of the worst superman movies it was actually my favorite as a kid i don't know how well it holds up i'm gonna say that right now right but it scared the shit out of me at the end with the weird robot lady okay. uh, who comes out of the fucking canyon i do not remember the context of why there's a weird robot lady but it scared the shit out of me okay. it also that's got the thing where it has the red kryptonite and he splits into good and evil superman and that's just another great acting christopher reeve acting showcase oh like, yeah we got bad superman in a punching fight with good superman and yeah man junkyard like yeah i think that movie like it needs uh it needs a reappraisal 
Okay. Okay. We're going to go back to the vault. Yeah. Uh, Moving on. Okay. Nerd, nerding (laughs) over. Okay. (laughs) Um, On May 27th, 1995, Reeve was thrown from his horse during an Mm. equestrian competition in Virginia. Mm -hmm. He broke his neck in the fall. He was paralyzed from the shoulders down and he used a wheelchair and a ventilator for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. This is, I mean, actually like uh, some really cool stuff though. Like this happened to him and he just kept going. He directed In the Gloaming. He mm-hmm. was in a TV remake of Rear of Window. Mm-hmm. Oh, Rear Window. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made seven, several appearances on the show Smallville, which is a show about Superman's teen years. That's right, yeah. And he authored two books. Mm-hmm. He lobbied for spinal injury research, uh, stem cell research, and better insurance coverage for people with disabilities. I remember him testifying before Congress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He died of an apparent reaction to the drug that he'd been given for an infected pressure ulcer. Oh, and I like 100% did not jot it down. I think he died in 2004. I was living in Boston at the time. Uh So it was either, it was somewhere 2004 to 2006. I think it was 2004 because... This is where the next part of the alleged curse comes in. Less than two years later, his wife, Dana, died of lung cancer, and she had never been a smoker. That's right. That's right. It's not impossible, you know what I mean, to get well, lung cancer without being a smoker, but... Exposed to asbestos or something. It's weird, you know? you know? It is weird. So there are several other actors who have played the role of Superman who aren't considered part of the quote-unquote curse. This includes Tom Welling, who played Superman on Smallville, Dean Kane, who played the character on Lois and Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that guy got cursed. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, okay. So we've got Tom Welling who played Superman on Smallville, Dean Kane, who played him on Lois and Clark, Brandon Routh, is Ralph. that how you say his name? Uh, who played the character in Superman Returns. And then of course we have Henry Cavill, who is the latest to date mm-hmm. iteration of Superman. I am not trying to be a jerk here, but Welling and Ralph did not get a post-Superman career boost. Cavill Mm. just got dumped as Superman, and as you tried to uh, usurp my story, Kane endorsed Trump twice. (laughs) So Yeah, he just got cursed with becoming a terrible person. But like, yeah, yeah, Brandon Ralph is actually too bad because I actually really like that Superman movie. Unfortunately, directed by creepy pedophile uh, Brian Singer. Yes. Allegedly, allegedly. Don't sue me. But I did really like the movie because it was trying to do like a like a kind of building off of the original, like the Richard Donner, Christopher Reeve series. And I kind of liked it as a weird, I didn't think it was a great movie, but I kind of liked it as a weird throwback. Right. And I thought he was a pretty decent superman in i'm not gonna say he was as good as christopher reeve but in that mold uh-huh. and it, it just did nothing for him like the guy just vanished yeah i think also too that watching him in that movie knowing that in i mean what were we because when did when did that movie come out when did that superman return so i was still living in abingdon and i mean just a few yeah, years i want to say it was like 2005 ish Right. A few years later, we were going to hit the beginning of the MCU. And it is just so strange to see 
Brandon Routh, who is does not have a bad body by any stretch of the imagination, but also does not look. He's he's not. He's not. Like Chris, he is. Yeah. Chris he Evans, is, he does Evans not Zoom. have a super. He does not have a Superman body. He was yeah. a lean and lithe Superman. Mm-hmm. And then but, to see you know moving into the MCU when it was these like outrageous bodies or or Robert Downey Jr. But who did not Robert, have a bad body? But he's. Robert Downey Jr. didn't have to. <laughs> he was like yeah, Iron he's Man. He's got the brain. He's got the brain. Yeah. What I would say, and if I I could very easily go back and rewatch that movie and be like, oh, this is garbage. Uh-huh. But I think at the time, and this is, yeah, this is before we were just steeped in superhero movies. Like, you know, the big superhero movies at the time are like the X-Men movies. Yeah. Oh, and Batman. They were they were just gearing up to do the like the Christian Bale Batman stuff. Oh, I yeah, guess they, yeah, had, yeah. they had done the first one. I guess I don't think so. Not by the time that one had come out. I think I think. Um, okay, hold on. Oh, Dark Knight is like two thousand right now. I know Dark Knight was two thousand eight. I feel like Batman. Okay, Superman as... Returns was two thousand six. Okay, and then what was the first? Batman Nolan... Begins. I want to say is like two thousand four, three or four. How did I not? Huh. Okay. So what did I say? What did I say? Superman Returns was uh, two thousand six. Yeah, so Batman Begins was 2005. Okay. I just well cuz again, I remember seeing it when I lived in Boston. So that's that's oh. my that's my uh gauge for a lot of things. But yeah. like see, I was remembering that I saw the second one with Heath Ledger here when I was already back in Albuquerque. Right. And but people forget the second one. People forget Batman Begins <laughs> because the Heath Ledger one was so like it blew everyone away. But Yeah. Well, and it was kind of stupid to be like the scarecrow. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like we don't we want it we just want we just care about the joker right um okay so having said that we're gonna get back into the curse stuff okay. um so there's that it's also widely considered that anybody who voices the character of superman for an animated series is also not touched by the curse mm-hmm. however lee quigley who played baby superman in the first christopher reeve movie he died at age 14 mm. after inhaling solvents Like in a huffing type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is real fucking terrible. Marlon Brando. This is like the rest of the sort of like collateral Mm. damage of the Superman curse, quote like so to speak. Uh, Marlon Brando played Jor-El in the Mm. 1978 movie. He is lumped in with the curse for the misfortunes that he experienced in his life, which include his son's imprisonment. Do you want to tell this story? <laughs> no. <laughs> Which I include... <laughs> I just knew something happened to his son. I don't remember the details. But. Yeah. His son's imprisonment at the shooting of Brando's half-sister's boyfriend. That's right. Okay. Brando's daughter also took her own life. Oh, um, that's right. Mm-hmm. Brando apparently admitted he was like, I have been a terrible father. Well I, well, I mean, you said, you know, collateral damage. I mean, I feel like Brando is the definition of collateral damage just as and, a person. Yeah. And Brando yeah. was, I, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that he was fighting his own demons. Mm-hmm. Um, Brando was kind of an awful human being. Yeah, um, he really he, was. He really was. So like, I, I don't not, know if we can really lump that in with the curse. Well, and, and like not 
I mean, he's a great actor in the sense that like some great directors were able to cut around his bullshit to get good performances out of him. But like, watch the outtakes from Apocalypse Now, which you know is my favorite movie of all time. So I've seen all the documentaries about it, mm-hmm. and like, I love his performance in the movie. But you watch all just his fucking rambly bullshit. You know, just the fact that Francis yeah. Ford Coppola was able to get anything out of that performance. Yeah, is amazing. Rita Moreno talks about her relationship with Marlon Brando in the documentary that is about her on Netflix. Um, Mm -hmm. Should absolutely watch it. She is an incredible human being. And fun fact, she (laughs) fucked Elvis Presley (laughs) to make Marlon Brando mad. Like only Rita Moreno could be like, I'm sick of your shit. I don't want to deal with you anymore. I'm going to go fuck Elvis Presley. (laughs) Also, fun fact, my good friend Maureen Barucha just directed her in a film. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's come out yet, but it's called The Prank. Uh, you should look it up, and whenever it's available, you should watch it. I haven't yeah. seen it yet. And said that she was like, you know, like oh, full of she's beans like, still. Yeah, right? she's like in her 90s and just like doesn't look at it all and is like just full of energy and was fantastic to work. It, was, it sounds like it was one of those like life defining yeah. experiences working with her. So, yeah, she is 91 years old. It's, and it's amazing. If you look at a currently picture of her, shows no signs of stopping. No. I'm just going to say it. Beige don't age. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, Margot Kidder. Mm. Margot Kidder played Lois Lane in the Christopher Reeve movies. Yeah. She suffered from bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. In 1996, Kidder went missing for several days. She was found right. by the police. She was in a paranoid, delusional state. Mm-hmm. There's sort of a laundry list of stuff that was going on with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she died. She had some addiction issues, I think, didn't she? She did. She died in 2018 of a drug and alcohol overdose. Yeah. Okay. Um, that she, recent. I thought it was, I thought it was longer ago than that. But, same. Okay. But yeah, but it's hard to tell with anything that happened in the couple of years leading up to the pandemic because that feels That's like true. 30 years ago. That's true. There was, I don't remember what the year was, but she had been asked about the Superman curse and she was like, that's ridiculous. I just wrapped my car around a telephone pole and I'm still here. And it was like, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, she, I mean, to be fair, she survived a bunch of shit. Like she lasted a, quite a while with she some did. of the shit she, she did. So, but yeah, but she, she, had she a, was absolutely like fighting her own demons as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Richard Pryor, who you mentioned earlier, played villain yep. Gus Gorman in 1983's Superman 3, which you've heard it here, is, according to Scotty, the best Superman movie. <laughs> the greatest of all. Yes. <laughs> now, Pryor was an addict. He survived a near-fatal suicide attempt. Lit himself and, on fire on accident. Mm-hmm. He also had a lot of problems. He was actually diagnosed with MS three years after appearing in Superman 3. Oh, wow. um, which I think made, made him relatively young he, for he, he, getting he was an pretty, MS diagnosis. I think he was pretty young, yeah. Mm-hmm. Three people on the DVD crew of Superman Returns were injured. One fell down a flight of stairs. Hmm. Another was mugged and assaulted. And the third smashed through a glass window. Hmm. Director and alleged creepo, Brian Singer, said, my DVD crew absorbed the curse for us. Yeah, well, and then... Uh... <laughs> Uh, Hold on, if you're going to talk about (laughs) quit trying to steal 
my fucking story. Okay. <laughs> the next, Allison fucking Matt played Chloe that's not, Sullivan. That's not who I was going to mention, but played yeah. Chloe Sullivan on Smallville. Mm-hmm. She became a member of the Nexium cult and was arrested and convicted of sex trafficking and forced human labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Did you watch that documentary series, the the Vow on HBO? I did. I didn't watch the second one. I started this. I was. I had a harder time with the second one, but that first. Ooh, just, that's a fucking insane story. It's an insane, insane story. It's also a great example of what you have talked about. Of like anyone who you, you convince yourself you're not. Oh, I'd never fall for a cult. I, I'm. I could never fall for that. These people are stupid. I'm not that. No, like anyone, like the right circumstances, anyone can get sucked in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's good to have a healthy dose of disbelief Humility. in yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah listen if you learn anything from the weirdest thing podcast it's that you should never think that you are too great um (laughs) yeah and last and maybe least kate ballsworth played lois lane in superman returns and she actually blames the curse on her relationship with orlando bloom becoming strained during filming um I mean, mean. to me, you're dating Orlando Bloom. Like you (laughs) had to know that guy was not going to be forever material. Right. Yeah. That seems like a stretch to me. That seems like a stretch to me. Okay. I am now done with the people. So who are you going to say? I mean, Kevin Spacey. Oh, God. Lex Luthor. Yeah. Oh, I completely forgot about him. He is not. I mean, he's his own curse. but Yeah, he's his own curse. He, yeah, because this wasn't like, oh, he did the Superman movie and then this thing happened. He was no, just. But, but I, w- I mean. A creep. Watching someone's just entire career go up in flames. Wow. You know. Yeah, man. He went yeah. from being like one of the most. I keep seeing the usual suspects and I enjoyed that movie so much. And mm. well, I just I, can't bring myself to watch it again. No, because it's Brian Singer and Kevin Spacey. Jesus Christ. Same with uh, Superman Returns. Yeah. Yeah. When I remember usual suspects to me was one like first time I watched it blew my mind. Second time I watched it, I was going like, oh, that's obvious. Like it It's a comfort it, movie to me. It speaks to a yeah. very specific time in my life. Yeah, I could see that. And it does have, like, I loved some of the performances in it. I loved um, Gabriel Byrne in that mm-hmm. movie. I actually really like Stephen Baldwin in that movie. <laughs> and Benicio Del Toro. Benicio Del Toro is a good time. Doing whatever uh, he Kevin Pollock is also. Oh, I always forget. He was, he's, I love him in just about everything. Just like, about I'll everything. Watch, yeah. He's, he's great on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, he's just kind of being Kevin Pollock, but he's just yep. great at being Kevin Pollock. But yeah. really, really dang good at it. Okay. So, Curses, in my opinion, are kind of like ghosts. Like you believe Mm -hmm. in them or you don't. You've either seen evidence of them or you haven't. And if you don't believe in them, you kind of judge people who do. (laughs) But the Superman curse seems to actually have enough clout that apparently there are big Hollywood agents that will not put their clients up for the role when it comes up in a movie or whatever. They're just like, stay away from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Additionally, for a comic book movie about arguably the most famous superhero, Superman movies, I think with the exception of... 
the Christopher Reeve movies have really struggled to get a footing in, in like the pop culture zeitgeist at the box office. Well, the problem was Superman. Mm -hmm. And I, and I I say this as someone who generally likes the character and I really do like the Christopher Reeve movies. Mm -hmm. I like those films, but Superman's a hard character to grab onto because he's like a, he's like a Jesus Christ kind of guy. Too perfect. And hold on, put a pin in that because I'm going to come back to that in a second. So you've got that, right? That's like, it should be the making for like huge blockbusters. But with the exception of the 1978 Superman and the 2013 Man of Steel, both of those movies did well, but the sequels kind of- Even Superman 2, which I think was a decent success in the 80s, but it was like considered a letdown. And I know the production stories behind it were it was mm-hmm. like a nightmare production. Right. So um an article from E online, E exclamation point online from 2012 basically says that after the 1978 movie, which was a miracle in its success. <laughs> yeah. And it's that great. There, it's really yeah. Great. That there will never be another great Superman movie because there can't be. They got lightning in the bottle with that first one Mm -hmm. and no one will ever be able to recapture it. Yeah, I I think that, well, particularly because, you know, it had the right sense of like respect and irreverence with Mm -hmm. the character. Mm -hmm. Because like the problem with the Henry Cavill movie I would say, and, and to a degree, the Brandon Routh one is they're too reverent to the character in a way. And they're in like, you know, the Henry Cavill version, it's like the broody Superman. And that's like not really Superman. who Superman is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, and that's, that's the thing is that like, I am not a huge Superman fan. I don't think that he is a particularly captivating hero. But I also understand how captivating he was when the character was first launched because he was everything that like mm-hmm. he was everything that America wanted to believe it's like about itself. Well, this is you know, he as... was a guardian of the good and the fight against evil. He was unerring in his values. He was always selflessly taking care well, of the underdog. He was an alien who assimilated to American culture so seamlessly mm-hmm. that he was able to hide his true self inside Clark Kent. He was this near godlike creature hidden inside of an well, everyman. Let's also not forget he was created by a bunch of Jews on the eve of World War II. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And, but that's the thing is that like, you know, you were saying he's like this, he can be this kind of like Christ-like figure and Superman to me is really only interesting in the presence of something that threatens that mm-hmm. all good. Mm-hmm. Which is what they're trying to do with the first um, Henry Cavill film is that mm-hmm. they're trying to, you know, it was the whole controversy that he killed someone in that he kills. What's his name? General Zog or whatever. Uh-huh. Zod, I think. Uh-huh. Um, and it's like Superman's never killed anyone, but I was like, they were trying to like comp- morally complicate the character. And it was supposed to be this like thing that was going to haunt him. I, I don't think they ever really like did anything with it in the subsequent movies but like you know it's an interesting idea but it's it's hard to do like the moment you start trying to do that with superman you kind of get away from what makes superman superman and so it's it's this weird like like you said it's kind of a miracle that what they're able to do with the 1978 one and i think it's because they weren't afraid to be a little bit silly with it and you know it's got some great slapstick humor 
Um, it's got Gene Hackman is just like the best Lex Luthor you could imagine. And of course, yeah. Warren Beatty in that oh, film. Like it, it just it had it was like willing to take just enough of the piss out of Superman to not feel like naive or too quaint, but right. it's also but it's but it's still honoring the character, and it's a, such a great antidote to the like the darkness of 1970s film to get you know it was like the right movie at the right time with the Precisely. right cast and the right script and right director with Richard Donner and like yeah you know so yeah I, I agree I don't think you're ever it's not a character that just lends itself very well yeah and it's interesting because it's like hollywood has really struggled to translate the magic of the hero from the page to the screen Mm -hmm. like i have not read a ton of superman comics but clearly the guy has something because he's been around for fucking ever right and for whatever reason it just doesn't it just doesn't it's just not translating it's it's always like a pale and somehow batman works like and i'm i'm over bat like i i don't need another batman movie. i don't need another i don't yeah i don't need I, another I saw batman the batman the one with robert pattinson and mm-hmm. was just like i was just like i don't care and it was like a well done movie and he was a you know pretty good i thought what's his name paul dano was good it was too dark like visually too dark. i couldn't see what the fuck was happening but like, but I was just like, I don't care. I don't care about another Batman movie. I kind of had that feeling about the Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie where it's just like, I don't care about this character anymore. Yeah. And I you think know, that I thought that... the performance was good. I did not really buy the whole, oh, it's an alt-right, like, manosphere movie. I thought that was kind of overdone. But like, but I was, I didn't care. I couldn't make myself care about it. And I think that that is, you know, time will tell with the MCU, but at least in the first phase of it, right, where we've got Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, mm-hmm. the Hulk, and all that stuff. Who am I yeah. leaving out? Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. But Guardians of the Galaxy. Black Widow. Protects, uh, Black Widow. As much as, like, you know, as much as I miss Iron Man and Captain America and all of the new stuff that's coming out, they did a really, really smart thing of being like, they're, they're gone. Like, we're well, pulling them out. Because we cannot continue to tell these stories. There's a whole other fucking universe, like a canon. I think the thing that Marvel Studios discovered early on, Mm. and this has played into how they're approaching the MCU now, Mm -hmm. is that, you know, when they started... Uh, with the MCU, they did not have the rights to their biggest characters. They didn't yeah. have Spider-Man. They didn't have the X-Men. Mm-hmm. So they were like, we have we have to go for the also rants. Like, people forget Thor, Iron Man. Don't give a fuck about those characters in 2005. No. <laughs> like, and I think... I, I barely think... knew who they were. Like, I kind of knew that Iron Man had existed. Yeah, and knew I knew nothing feel... about Tony Stark. I feel like when they were like, Iron Man, everybody was kind of like, huh... Yeah, it was, but, okay. but then but it was then like Robert they, Downey Jr. Yeah, and they did such a good job, and they set the tone so great well, for that I, universe. I think the problem with the D, I mean, the DCU has a lot of problems. One is that they've never had a consistent vision for it. No, but I think like, they take themselves too seriously. They keep going. They keep trying to reboot their iconic characters. And it's like, we don't need another Superman. We don't need another Batman. Wonder Woman was great because we finally got Wonder Woman. But then yeah. it seems like they kind of fucked up the thing in the sequels. But like what was great about the MCU is it's like they were stuck with these, like they had to make us fall in love with these characters we knew nothing about. Yeah. And so that created like, um, 
I hate the phrase permission structure, but it kind of works for this. It's a permission structure for the fans to then fall in love with new characters every time. Yeah. So now it's like, okay, now we have the new, we have Falcon, who's the new Captain America. Mm-hmm. You, have, you, know? you know, Scarlet Witch. Yeah, you've Witch got Winter and- Soldier. Yeah, Scarlet Witch. You've got Doctor Strange. You've got Loki. Like they're, and I think that they, you know, whatever you want to think about it, I think that they're doing a really smart thing with being like, hey, this is actually going to be like movies and TV shows. And it's all mm-hmm. going to be woven together and it's all going to be the same stuff and it's all going to be tied. But and the you thing know, is, DC has those characters. They could go into their library and do stuff with them, but, yeah. but they don't. It'll be really interesting to see now that James Gunn has basically taken over DC because he's, I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy wouldn't have happened without him. Like right. he was like he pushed for and talk about also ran characters that no one cared about. Right. Um, but he had the foresight to be like, let's yeah, fucking talking raccoon, let's do this. Yeah, and um, like so he really, could- really great casting. I think that's mm-hmm. been the thing too. And I think the big thing with MCU is that they took think about Chris Evans in not another teen movie. <laughs> and think about who had to look at that and go, I think that guy can play Captain America. Oh, the, yeah. Like their ability to see an actor beyond what like we sort of assumed the actor already was. Like people forget that when they picked Robert Downey Jr. to be Iron Man in this big, like this was Robert Downey Jr. like pretty fresh out of prison. Yeah. Like they could, they had a hard time ensuring the guy. Yeah. Like this was the guy who had like not only lit his career on fire, but kind of, almost i think like lit actual shit on fire fire. yeah like yeah like yeah uh, you know and they were like no but we're gonna do it can you imagine anyone else's tony stark no can you imagine anyone else's thor like they no i I don't know what crimson i think chris hemsworth was doing like australian stuff well he wasn't might have done some like beef cakey romantic comedy or like romance movie but like Like what the thing that they saw in Chris Hemsworth that I don't think anyone would have predicted is that the guy's really funny. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, they, they back to my boy, Edward Norton, they kind of made a mistake with him and Hulk, but they, they corrected it with Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> yeah. And I think that was the thing too, is that they really allowed space for Loki is fucking funny. Loki and, and mm-hmm. Thor's dynamic is really funny. They allowed for like a lot of silliness Mm-hmm. in the mcu which i think was and i think that's to me that has been a big detractor of I, dc is that they I've just always, take themselves so seriously i've always said and you would think like because i'm into horror and stuff you'd think i'd like the dark broody mm-hmm. uh stuff i i just generally don't i mean i did like the nolan batman movies well enough mm-hmm. but like even those i wasn't in love with my favorite mcu movies are always the funny ones yeah. Like my favorite one to this day is still the first Guardians of the Galaxy. And you know, the where they went with the Thor movies is great. And they also they managed to get a you know sort of a cast and crew and a creative team that really has this like team spirit. You know, I think they learned this is where they went wrong with Edward Norton, and it goes back to what I was saying about him being difficult and like wanting things his way mm-hmm. is fundamentally like he didn't do a bad performance in the Hulk movie, but the guy wasn't a team player. He wasn't gonna be a team player yeah um he he wanted to like rewrite the movie to suit his own and they're like no this is part of a larger plan and you know it's just he wasn't the right guy for it yeah you know? anyway but uh yeah no so oh yeah 
I was gonna say, uh, are, do you have more? Like, do you need just to, just like, a bit? I just am like, I'm, let me just like wrap up my story. Okay, so like I said, they really struggled to bring Superman from the page mm-hmm. to the screen, and I like am not saying that that's a curse. I do think it might just be source material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like, I and I go, I go back to what Kirk Allen said that he was like, I thought it would be impossible mm-hmm. to bring. And I, I think that that's a little bit of a thing is that I, I, I think it, it, it might be a little impossible. I'm not saying that right. there, there isn't an idea out there. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to take some severe thinking outside the box to make another like really successful Superman movie. Yeah. So I'm going to wrap this up. Up by coming back to the 27 Club. Okay. To me, the idea of the 27 Club loses steam as a curse because almost all of the quote unquote members died from overdoses or due to things that happened because they were under the influence. The guy who was the um he was uh was he the original lead singer of the Rolling Stones? I'm not even sure who that would be. Oh, hold on, hold on. Now I'm going back to it. Twenty. The thing is, is that like part of the reason the Twenty Seven Club started is because from it's something like July fifth, nineteen sixty nine to July fifth, nineteen seventy one, we lost all four of these people, and it was this guy, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and Jim Morrison. Mm-hmm. Um, hold on. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna bring it up because I need to remember what his name is. Um, Brian Jones and Brian he was Jones, a guitarist. I think I don't think he, he was the singer. Was yes, he was the founder, rhythm and lead guitarist, and original leader of the Rolling Stones. Right. Um, and he he's the one who te- the cause of death was drowning. Right, right, right. Was it a swimming pool or something? Yeah, yeah. And it's the same thing with Janice Joplin. Like they actually think that she had done heroin that night and she was walking. She was in her hotel. I think it was a hotel room. She was in her hotel room. She's on heroin and she like tripped on a rug or something and she fell and she hit her hand, her head on the nightstand. And like, that is technically what killed her. Mm-hmm. But all of that to say, it's all stuff like that. It's, it's, it's mostly overdoses or things that happened because they were under the it's influence. Like uh, nothing weird. Right. And I I mean, like, maybe you could be like, oh, isn't it weird that they all, but I think going back to what I said in the beginning, I think they, they like, they were just presented with a, right. a, a cornucopia of stuff to fuck their lives up with. And they mm-hmm. were like, cool, let me dive in. Right. Um, the Superman curse to me does actually seem to have some more legs. I had read something that was like, it's not a curse. It's just that there have been so many Superman projects that of course, like people are going to die, you know, and there's going to be some weird stuff in there and all that. But my thing is, is that Star Wars has also had, now it hasn't had it hasn't been around as long, but Star Wars has also had an incredible amount of content oh, stuff, and it doesn't have. Well, and the and the things that happen in the Superman stuff are mm-hmm. like there's enough things that are weird and kind of hard to explain or Precisely. unexpected. Like you know, is it a shock that Jim Morrison drank himself to death when he was 27? No. No. Was it kind of a shock that Christopher Reeve was thrown from a horse and paralyzed? Yeah. Yeah. Did not see that coming. And I think that's the thing is that the way that these like accidents, disasters, misfortunes manifested, they're all so different. They are so random. Yeah. There's no common thread. It's just. Right. 
I mean, the original artist going blind, mm-hmm. George Reeve maybe killing himself, maybe being murdered, Christopher mm-hmm. Reeve getting paralyzed. The other dude dying, uh, you know, virtually unknown because he couldn't get work. Right. The dudes who did the first animated series, that guy, like, you know, people dying in like abject poverty, mm-hmm. you know, mental health issues with people like Margot Kidder. Like there's just, I, there, there's just like, it's so all over the place that it, it feels much stranger. Yeah. It does. All of that to say, it might be time to put Superman to bed for a little while mm-hmm. and see if like maybe the vibes can't be cleansed by some time mm-hmm. out of the spotlight. Yeah. Um, well, and, you know, hit up the rest of that uh, DC universe. See, yeah. see what else is out there. Do a deep dive into the catalog. I know that there's characters you can do something with that yeah are not superman batman and wonder woman wonder woman or the justice league like or the justice I think you, league. yeah i right. think you can look out of the justice league and check it out a little bit all right, right that's my story on the superman curse and i'm sticking yeah, to no, it that's a good one Let, let's talk uh believability scale what do you, where are you gonna put that i'm i put this one at like a six or a seven honestly I think I would it's too. just too much i think i put it up pretty high and like so like you said you have christopher reeve who got thrown from a horse you have the original artist going blind you have allison mack becoming part of a cult i mean kevin spacey the most beloved actor of his generation turning out to be one of the worst human beings in the world yeah i mean it's a it's a lot and like it's i said it is it is a price is right spinning wheel of tragedy Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah you know, some it of it self-inflicted, some of it, you know, freak accidents, freak accidents. Some, I mean, but it's just, it's a lot. And the fact that it's against the backdrop of this character who's like perfect and yeah, you know, everything true and good, and tr- you know, truth and justice in the American mm-hmm. way. It's like that seems not an accident. You know, yeah. the contrast. So, and like yeah. I said, even going to the thing of like, you know, careers that should have gotten a boost. Mm-hmm. You know, like, no, I mean, I know Brandon Routh is like still doing stuff. Uh, same with Tom Welling, but like, it's actually all still kind of Superman connected. Yeah. Well, I'm like Dean Kane has managed, but the only, he just, you know, he manages to go make his right wing fucking bullshit. I like saw, if he didn't have that. <laughs> I saw something that it was like, I think he was a Republican, but then he became a quote unquote independent and was like fiercely left us in some beliefs. Like apparently he has lobbied hard for the legal- legalization of marijuana, but is like fiscally well, conservative. Like- it was one of those, like, I mean, it's one of those weird populists where like, it's actually just a hodgepodge of shit that isn't thought out very well. Right. Like, yeah. So I, I, I'd put it, I'd put it high on the believability mm-hmm. scale. Yeah. Let's all, let's like, I don't know, wrap Terry Hatcher in cellophane and protect her (laughs) because we don't need her to go down. Also, one of the things that I am going to put in the uh, social media post about this is a side-by-side of, uh, why can I not remember the poor dude's name? This is part of the curse. I can't even remember the poor guy's name. Kirk Allen as Superman next to Henry Cavill. (laughs) The character's gone through an evolution. yeah yep yep uh but i mean you know same is true for michael keaton's batman versus well michael uh, not to keep not to keep like geeking out but like michael keaton was just such a tim burton choice of like let's pick this this guy who's just very much not who you would think 
And yet, Batman. And it works. Still, it's, it's great. I think it's my great. favorite Batman. I I, I enjoyed the Nolan movies, but there was something about it about about Michael Keaton's Batman that felt so of the world. I think um, I might go so far as to say the Nolan movie, and I'm not. And this is like I'm not sure I'm gonna like stick with this thought. But the okay. Nolan movies might be overall the best Batman movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to factor in the third one, which brings brings the average down a bit. And like Heath Ledger was a great Joker, although I do love Jack Nicholson. I think that Christian Bale is nobody's favorite Batman. Like doing his Batman <laughs> voice, and like, I mean, he's he's actually not, he's actually he's only kind of good in the first movie because the first movie is the only one where you get kind of like. You know, Bruce Wayne, the playboy, you know, mm-hmm. and the contrast between that and like the broody Batman. Um, he's just broody Batman and the rest of it. He's, bo- he's think, boring as fuck. Like, I think if you didn't have Heath Ledger, you wouldn't care about that second movie. Right. And I think that that has been a problem with the subsequent Batman movies mm-hmm. after Michael Keaton's Batman is that I'm like the genius in the Batman story is that he is this billionaire playboy. He is Mm -hmm. this person that nobody would look to and be like, are you fighting crime on the side? Because Mm -hmm. he's, you know, well, he's he's Elon Musk. He's like a Jeff Bezos type. Who's just like, I, here's my money and I'm fucking doing, here's the hot chicks and here's my yacht and blah, blah, blah. And And then he's like, but secretly I'm doing this other thing. Well, he's got a little bit of darkness because he's Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton kind of brings some natural darkness to a role, but like, I just remember in the first movie and it's so like, to me, what makes Michael Keaton so great Mm -hmm. is, you know, you've had through the whole movie, the like, you know, have you ever danced with the devil in the pale movie? Yeah. And it's the, you know, and it's this like, you know, thing and then when he finally gets to say it to him at the end he's like have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight and it's it's just like that delivery is like what sells it yeah no he's he's by far like i said i'm not sure i would say those are the best at least the two burnt movies those aren't the best movies although they're good i mean they're pretty fun but he's definitely the best interpretation of the character i yeah i think no one's touched him no and i think i think you know getting back to what i was saying is that like there is that darkness but the 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 darkness the kind of broodiness is something that is very tucked away Mm -hmm. you know i think Alfred is like the one person who really kind of gets to see that in the character of bruce wayne other than that it is tucked away well because when you cast michael keaton you don't have to lean into it like the problem with and it's and they really do it with a robert pattinson one it's just i mean where they turn him into like an emo kid like with the floppy hair and eyeliner and everything like it but it's just like you don't need to you don't need to do that like you don't need to push so hard to make him so also it like why have an alter ego then exactly like why not just be yeah, no, Bruce I love Wayne with all of your gadgets. Why be Batman? I've I've felt like Bruce Wayne should be closer to Tony Stark as yeah. a character than he ever is portrayed. And the only actor who really kind of understood that was Michael Keaton. I miss Michael Keaton, man. I don't know what he's doing, but I miss him. Oh, he pops him. up. I mean, he was he was Vulture in one of the things and he pops up in stuff. <laughs> What are you talking about? He was he was the vulture character in one of the Spider-Man and uh, uh, second Spider-Man. Oh movie. yeah yeah yeah. No, but like I want him like around. You know yeah, what I no, mean? I, I would like I would like like him to like headline a fucking HBO show or something. Yes, like, although he did well to give credit where credit is due. He headlined Dope Sick, and he was excellent. Oh, I, I haven't watched and, that. And, I forgot and about that. Absolutely fucking 
heartbreaking in that mm. show. I'll tell you about it offline. Um, okay. All right. With that, we've we been need, talking to you guys be done. Yeah. yeah, for a long time. Sorry, everybody. We're excited to be back. Um, <laughs> sorry, not sorry. And a little um, punchy. And a little punchy. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. As always, subscribe, rate, review. Stay weird. Stay curious. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest 